we're going to create a system that works and we're going to do it in a way that takes out human error. Bitcoin being the best example by setting things like not just a transparent ledger, but by the way, this is going to be a monetary system that has a fixed supply. You can't fuck with it. No government can ruin it. No guy who has to win elected office or save his ass that can say in the short term, like, all right, we're just going to print money and solve the fucking problem and leave it to the next guy. There's no kicking the can down the curb. Yeah, you know, Bitcoin's not a bubble. Bitcoin is the the pin that pops the bubble. Mm. <laughs> it's that's like a kind of an idiom in crypto. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by my friend Cole Canelli. Cole works at a company called Staked. Which let me put this in English for you. You most likely have U.S. dollars if you're listening to this, and you may put said dollars in a savings account at a bank, and it earns interest, and it probably makes like a penny on $100 a year because interest rates are nowhere and you make no money. Cole does that, except not with U.S. dollars. He does it with, you ready for it? Cryptocurrency. Yeah, we're going there today. So Cole has been in this space for a long time. He was there when before it was cool, when it was cool, after it was not cool, and when it's apparently like kind of cool again. He is somebody who is, I believe he says he started really in this in the beginning of 2016. I think he talks about that today. Total genius, very smart. And by the way, Staked is not his only project. It's not. It's one thing. His other thing, he's a founder on, co-founder with one other person, and I believe his title is CEO. And it's called Volumex.Finance. And it is a volatility index that you can invest in built on the Ethereum blockchain. And I just watched, I didn't watch, but I can imagine the eyes on your faces just glazing over, your ears ringing, and you going, what the hell did he just say? We do talk about that today, but that is not at all the focus of this conversation. You will at least understand what that means, though. Cole is somebody I wanted to bring in here to talk about the space in general. This is important. It is a weird time, a tragic time in many ways right now going on in the world with the pandemic and everything around that. But we have also watched the continuation, in fact, the nuclear bomb of the trend that's occurred not just in our country but around the world, especially since the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, of governments printing more money and us not knowing anything about what it actually does to the value of said money, or most of us don't. And it's something that I spent a lot of my life clueless about and really only started paying attention to in like 2017-2018 when I started to become aware of crypto. My belief is that crypto is very much here to stay. It is a way of the future, and it is a path to financial freedom. Now, you say, all right, that's a lot of buzzwords, a lot of rah-rah. Okay, whatever. Cole is here to actually make some sense of it and to open up the conversations. And look, it's a complicated topic. I've talked about it before. I've told you that one of the big problems with the crypto space is that they haven't found a way to bring it in English to the general public, including guys like myself. And it's true. In a lot of ways, they haven't. And there will be times today where we ramble. And there will be times where we went in little circles. And times where you're like, what the hell did Cole just say? However, I talked to Cole before the podcast. And he encouraged me to cut him off when he was getting a little bit too complicated. To try to like define things as he went along. So I don't like interrupting the flow of conversation. But you will hear me do that sometimes today just to keep it honest. 
I will say that there are a few times where maybe we didn't end up coming back to the original point of the conversation just because we went deep on a whole bunch of rabbit holes. And there will be some times where you're probably like, I, I really didn't get that. That said, I wanted to bring him in here for two to three hours just to make sense of some of it. And if we could get a half hour out of it that was really valuable for people to feel like they understand and how this stuff is actually conceptualized in, into everyone's reality, then it would be a success. So I hope we did that. Cole did a phenomenal job. He's huge on Twitter, by the way. And this dude, he's subtle and he's humble, but he is one of the greatest Twitter networkers of all time. This man has sat with some of the smartest people in the world when it comes to cryptocurrency and blockchain and other things strictly by networking and meeting them on Twitter. And I can verify a lot of that. I mean, it's pretty crazy some of the meetings he's had. So he is legit. He's a young killer. And I look forward to having him in here again. Hey guys, very quickly, Cole and I recorded this episode a couple days before Christmas. So Two relevant notes I just wanted to add in here because I did the intro right after we recorded the episode. Number one, the Bitcoin prices you hear us discuss, which is only a couple times. Obviously, they've changed a little bit because Bitcoin's ripped since then. And number two, we did not really discuss Ripple and XRP very much, but there was a five or ten minute area where we did. And this podcast was recorded hours before the SEC filed their lawsuit against Ripple. So when you don't hear any mention of that lawsuit, that's why it hadn't happened yet. Anyway, back to the intro. Other than that, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. If you're not subscribed on YouTube, Please subscribe there. I'm dropping clips almost every day. Pretty excited about that. I think that gives a good feel for what the show is all about, just in little bite sizes. And keep those five-star review on Apple Podcasts coming. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you to everyone who's done that. That's a huge help. They're really incredible. I, I really, really appreciate the people who do that. That's amazing. And finally, started this a few weeks ago, but if you can... Share the podcast with one week. Can you tell I'm a little tuned up? And it was a long day. I had a long conversation with this guy. I've been facing a little bottle of wine here. Don't sue me, you know. Anyway, let's try that again. If you can, please share the podcast with one friend who you think might like it. And obviously to everyone who's already done that and has continued to help me build this audience, thank you so much. And that said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Trendfire. Let's go. This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the news? You're giving opinions and calling them facts. You feel me? Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. What's cooking, brother? Hey man, thanks for having me on. This is great to be here. Dude, I'm glad you came down. Excited to have you on. This is a very interesting time to be talking to a man like you, so I've been looking forward to this one. But dude, what's going on with Bitcoin? You know, Bitcoin's uh, it's going to the moon right now. It's, uh, it's at 24K. Uh, it's all-time yeah. high. Or yeah. 20, 23.8K or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, market's looking really good. There's uh, happy to get more, you know, get more into it, but that's... At a high level, uh, Bitcoin is, is doing super well right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are very, you know, they hear Bitcoin, they hear cryptocurrency, and, and they're still very scarred from 2017 when everyone and their mother was jumping in on the bandwagon. They knew nothing about it. And 
then everything crashed in 2018. And so a lot of people just kind of left that behind and said, oh, we don't talk about that. And now here we are in the midst or towards the end, obviously, like very end of 2020, which has been a hell of a year in all the wrong ways. But we've seen a complete reintegration of the space into our public sphere. Yep. And we see a lot of people talking about it again. And my question for you is, as a guy who's been in this space consistently since before 2017 even, what has the vibe been this time around that makes you think like, hey, adoption's actually here? And that doesn't just mean for Bitcoin, but just like in general for a new way of looking at money. Sure. So uh, the main, the primary difference between what's going on in 2020, you know, bull market and crypto that from 2017 is... There's largely this institutional buy-in this time around. Um, you have folks, uh, legendary fund managers like uh, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, mm. Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller, uh, coming into crypto. Uh, you know, basically, re- you know, eliminating any reputational risk for any other fund managers that come in after them. Um, so that's certainly big. And you're also seeing uh, companies like MicroStrategy, a public, uh, publicly traded software company that's. Uh, buying Bitcoin with their balance sheet. Um, You're talking about the guy Michael Saylor on that we're seeing talking about this like every day on CNBC and Bloomberg and Twitter, right? That's right, Michael Saylor. He's Got it. The, he uh, runs that company. CEO of MicroStrategy, mm-hmm. right? So uh, yeah, you know, at a high level, uh, this time around, there's been a large institutional buy-in from both uh, you know institutional investors as well as you know different companies in the in the uh, you know in the in the markets that have you know kind of gravitated towards crypto and are now uh you know uh entering the market on you know with ethereum there's been uh you know a ton of growth um with a number of you know applications that have been built on ethereum largely around uh finance so uh there's kind of a a movement you know going on called decentralized finance or DeFi. so Mm -hmm. uh basically what's going on is there's uh you know there's these you know financial applications that are being built on ethereum um you know they're they're open source and and publicly available publicly you know uh can be verified you know um they're provable um and uh they're all you know they can be used together so they you can think of them like a common analogy is legos so people call these these protocols mm-hmm. money legos so you know a lending protocol can be used with a exchange protocol and these protocols together can be used to create a third protocol and so on and so forth so uh really powerful concept there uh you know happening with you know, uh, applications on Ethereum. And there's, you know, uh, at the beginning of the year, there was about $500 million locked in these DeFi applications. Today, there's, uh, you know, north of uh, 10, 10 or closer to $15 billion. So it's it's grown, you know, by orders of magnitude this lot. year. So overall, there's, you know, a uh, ton of developments happening in, you know, both Bitcoin and Ethereum and a lot of other, you know, related, uh, you know, related areas. So I think it's a super you know, uh, exciting time in the crypto space. All right, let me back you up because you just dropped like four or five bombs on us there. So let's let's take them one at a time. The first thing you were going through was the institutional buy-in to Bitcoin. And I think this is a really important point. I think you mentioned Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, some of these big hedge fund guys, obviously Sailor and, and what MicroStrategies is doing as a company. To be clear, I think when you said their balance sheet, they're putting it in Bitcoin they're, they've basically taken, I think at this point, maybe like a billion dollars worth of cash on hand and invested that in Bitcoin. Is that correct? Somewhere in that neighborhood? 
So I believe the initial investment, uh, Michael Saylor had had made a personal investment first. Um, mm. He disclosed that properly to the company, uh, but afterwards, I think MicroStrategy made a, I believe, it was three hundred twenty-five million dollar Bitcoin investment uh, around, if I'm not mistaken, it was around ten k. Um, so with Bitcoin at ten k, yeah. At so time. Bitcoin's yeah. at ten k. Um, so uh, fast forward. Uh, until a few weeks, you know, uh, in the last few weeks, micro micro strategy, uh, excuse me, um, they announced that they had bought fifty million dollars more Bitcoin at uh, around nineteen k. Mm. Um, coming coming the coming week from from that purchase, they announced that they uh, were issuing a, a convertible note um, to buy more Bitcoin, and we're doing, um, I think it was like six hundred million, uh, you know, dollar financing. Whew. So uh, all in, they've purchased. You know, they have. A, I think more than a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, so it's, it's certainly a, a material bet for them. Now that's one company, but we've also seen Square run by Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey take up positions there. We have seen Wall Street also come out and we've seen some positions like Mass Mutual took uh, sure. 150 million, I think. I I'm forgetting some of the other ones, but I'll put them in the show notes. There's been several, but we've seen a lot of quote-unquote old heads on Wall Street come out and suddenly be like, yeah, no, I get it. Like, I'm in, right? So back in 2017, again, to bring it back to that first time around, yes, you had some guys like Peter Thiel out in Silicon Valley take a position. You did have some hedge fund guys actually buy into it. I know Mark Yusko was one of them. You had but, guys like Tim Draper, yeah. uh, you know, Tramath from Social Capital and formerly Facebook, yep. um, you know, uh, uh, those are some of the bigger names. As Naval, well. Naval, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but the point stands that now, you know, those are you know early stage tech investors, and now we're seeing you know uh, folks like you know Mass Mutual is super interesting. The powers that be, it's sure, it's you know, basically the traditional powers that be coming in and saying, okay, all right, we at least publicly saying we get it and and we're in. And I want to start with the simple part of Bitcoin here because, again, a lot of people hear this stuff and their eyes glaze over. And sure. look, I think part of it is it's two things. Number one, we have a lack of financial literacy in this country and around the world for that matter. And this is more finance and it's a little more complicated too. And number two, because everything in the crypto space, so to speak, in that stratosphere touts itself as transparent and it is with what you can know about where it exists, what's on the blockchain, all that stuff that some people are like, what the hell is he talking about? But basically, you can go look at this stuff in ways that you can't look at it in a traditional banking system. But because of all that, when people go to look at it, they're like, what the fuck? Because it's so much. And they're like, I don't get it. And that's been a big resistance point. And I think that the crypto space, one of the things that they seem to be getting a little better at, but they still have a long way to go, is that unlike Silicon Valley who, when that was really growing, found a way to match the marketers with the genius and then take it to the everyman. In, in crypto, all the genius is there. That is so clear. But the messaging to take it all to the everyman has not been as effective as Silicon Valley eventually got it. It's still early here. But when I look at this, like you, we were talking about Ethereum. I don't know if that was on the podcast or right before. But then you start getting into things like that and people are really like, all right, I, you're losing me. What is it? Mm -hmm. So with Bitcoin, let's just completely start there right now. Sure. This is something that was created on October 1st, 2008 
by Satoshi Nakamoto. And then I want you to take it from there and kind of walk through just the beginnings of it and what the general concept was for people to understand. So Bitcoin was created uh, in 2008, 2009 by a pseudonymous uh, creator named Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, the title of the Bitcoin white paper is Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. So, you know, uh, from the from the get-go, the, the premise has always been, uh, you know, send anyone anywhere in the world, you know, uh, any amount of money at a low cost. Um, so if you're sitting in New Jersey or New York, you know, you uh, with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, folks can send funds, uh, you know, around the world with, you know, no permission, um, uh, you know, no authorization required from any third party. Bitcoin so, was the only one at first though, right? Bitcoin is the first uh, cryptocurrency, um, you know, to, there's actually been attempts to create other cryptocurrencies before, but Bitcoin was certainly the most, mm. uh, most the, the first, you know, let's say popular cryptocurrency. Um, there's other attempts called, you know, uh, uh, by David Chom called, you know, uh, Hash cash, I forget mm-hmm. if that's the right name, but uh, that was in like the nineties. Yeah, there's been all these, you know, there's been a kind of cryptography movement since uh, the eighties or so, um, and you know, it started getting applied to money uh, eventually. But um, so yeah, so so basically, um, Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency. It's also the first application of uh, blockchain technology, which is effectively uh, a distributed uh, ledger um, that you know, number of nodes, maintain, number of participants in the network maintain. Okay, um, let me stop you real quick. And sometimes, like yeah. today, we're, we're going to do this just because it, it is a little more complicated. I don't like breaking up the flow of Convo, but I, I just want to make sure we define stuff. So with the blockchain, that is, for all intents and purposes, for a third grader to understand it, it is computer code that is unhackable. And it creates a, a ledger, as you said. It creates a record, to use another word, of transactions that happen, in this case with Bitcoin involving money, which is Bitcoin, that then cannot be changed, and they are there as without any third-party interference. That's right. So it's a cryptographically uh, or you know mathematically enforced uh, you know system where uh, the the you know the the blockchain is maintained by a number of distributed nodes. So in order to change it, you would need to change. Uh, you know the the copy of the blockchain on all these different nodes, which is really impossible. So, um, you know, through this di- distributed network, it's able to kind of maintain itself. And yeah, it's it's certainly uh, immutable. Um, you know, blockchain cannot be changed. I think of blockchain a lot like uh, the internet or electricity, where uh, the blockchain is like a thin technology that can be applied to a lot of different industries. So, think of blockchain can be applied to finance. It can be applied to logistics. It can be applied to uh, the music industry, a number of different industries. You know, early now, now in the early days, it's finding some product market fit with, uh, you know, finance applications and, and things that involve money and things like this. Uh, but we'll likely see more applications gain steam in the, in how, the coming years. How could you apply it? I mean, it, it's hard enough understanding the money part, and I understand this aspect of it. But for the average person listening, how can you apply blockchain to say? One of the examples you gave, maybe music or whatever example is easiest for you to explain. Uh, one of the applications that comes to mind is uh, Axie Infinity. It's a crypto-enabled uh, game, um, you know, built on Ethereum. So uh, basically, the way they leverage uh, the blockchain and crypto is they use uh, Ethereum for storing these in-game assets. So <clears throat> the game is kind of you know inspired by Pokemon. They have these little, little uh, you know creatures in their game and the way that you know 
the the place that they you know these little in game the in game assets live is you know on chain. So they live on the Ethereum blockchain. So uh, no no uh, centralized you know no game developer um, you know no third party can take these you know creatures away mm-hmm. from from the players and uh, you know they're they're able to you know own and and you know and can you know provably know that they. Uh, have control of these uh, of these you know assets. So that's just one way. Um, at a high level, you can think of <clears throat> the blockchain in the music industry, how it could be used to automate uh, you know revenue shares between artists and uh, you know other 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 participants, uh, other you know players in the in the industry. So basically, like being able to track statistics on how far music spreads. So where right now we have traditional legacy music the music business is basically certain people control how the cuts are taken and now the artists themselves would also be able to see everywhere that happens suppose like on a high level sure yeah Yeah. no definitely and i actually there's actually some uh example i have that's in production today and is being used on the network on you know on ethereum today so there's a concept called nfts nfts are uh, actually related to axie which i was just talking about which they use NFTs, but NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's basically a crypto collectible. So think of a baseball card that has a digital di- uh, digital representation on mm. the blockchain. So there's a, there's a number of initiatives with these uh, NFTs today. You you actually have partnerships with the N- uh, NBA, MLB that have uh, you know started delving into this space, and there's a lot of interesting work being done. But uh, what about classic art? I'm just thinking yes. about the same application. So, like, so, you have all these paintings that people supposedly own, and so, now they could prove it. So, yeah. So, there's this uh, this NFT art coming around um, <clears throat> on a number of different platforms. Um, and what I'm getting at is uh, they're automating uh, basically attribution with NFTs. So every time the art trades, uh, the artist mm. is paid a certain amount. So I think they can set it when they kind of uh, you know publish it or, or kind of create the art but you know they set it uh you know five percent or ten percent wow. and they can always receive uh you know some sort of you know revenue from this art that they've created so it's a super interesting concept it's a tracking signal basically yeah certainly so the, and there's the crypto art market you know if we had a computer we could pull it up there's some good yeah. trackers um uh give me one let's see so i think it's look up crypto art um i'm not sure maybe we can add it a little bit uh crypto art see what comes up nope and i can no. toss some stuff in the notes after if let, need me, be. let me find it um anyways there's a, a tracker that has the most expensive artwork sold um and you'd be surprised there's there's some pieces of art uh crypto art that have sold for uh, hundreds of ETH. Um, so that's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so super interesting. There's, there's really a uh, passionate community and, you know, interesting community forming around NFTs. Um, you know, uh, there's folks that are, you know, willing to buy, um, NFTs at, at, you know, uh, you know, at a certain price. So it, and what does NFT stand for again? Uh, it's a non-fungible token. So it's basically yeah. unique, uh, collectible on the blockchain. Okay. So think of, uh, the baseball card on the blockchain or a piece of art, um, or uh, this type of stuff. So, uh, anyways, this is kind of a application that that blockchain can be used for. Um, I'm happy to talk about uh, DeFi as well. Let let let's get there. We we just went down <laughs> a rabbit hole already. And and guys, I knew this was going to happen. Cole will will get to some of his background organically in here at some point. But 
this this is his world. He he knows all this stuff inside and out. This is some one of the people I go to on pretty much any question in the space, and he's responsible for a lot of things I know as well and have researched myself. So fuck if I appreciate it. But um, to go back to the original start of that, which was talking about the application of blockchain as it relates to like Bitcoin and what else it can be used to used for. Sure. After Bitcoin was started as the original or the first adopted cryptography. Mm-hmm. We're talking beginning of 2009, it starts trading. And so as you stated and explained, it, it traded on the blockchain before there was any other type of cryptocurrency, be it Ethereum or XRP or Litecoin or whatever all these ones are, right? Yep. So the idea was that this was going to become a currency. It was going to become an exchange that we trade around the world, like we trade dollars. And one of the things that interest me a ton about it is the fact that it was that white paper that you discussed was released on October 1st, 2008, because that was two and a half or three weeks after Lehman Brothers crashed in the United States. And we were in the midst of spiraling down into this global financial crisis. And one of the offshoots, well, two offshoots were, A, you had all the elites, say the banks around the world, basically screw the average man over and B in order to get out of that crisis because if the banks all failed the entire system would fail and there'd be a worldwide depression that maybe we never come out of the governments had to create a lot of new money and so they had to print they had to get the presses out and they had to say all right more euros more dollars more whatever and these are cycles that had already been happening but they got exploded right there Mm -hmm. and then they've continued to explode in the decade plus since and so with bitcoin It came out at a time where trust was at an all-time low in these systems, and Satoshi, whoever he or the group of people was, and we don't know, looked at it and said, okay, this wealth is being taken from people, and people around the world don't realize it because they don't understand that if in one place you had $2 and now you have 4 those dollars are worth less. And Bitcoin, and this is my favorite part about it, is something that has a set amount. So can you talk about that part next, like how many there are? And Sure. Yeah, it's it's super interesting that uh, Bitcoin came out of this 2008 era where uh, there was so much, you know, um, you know, havoc and I, I suppose uncertainty, uh, you know, in the financial system. And uh, as I'll get into shortly, Bitcoin, you know, has, has a lot of certainty. And that's one of the great things about it. So there'll only ever be uh, 21 million Bitcoins um, in the current kind of uh, setup of the network. Um, I, I say this because there's some folks in the Ethereum space that uh, like to theor- theorize that um, there could be more than 21 million Bitcoins if the fees aren't material down the line, if they need to. Re- what does that mean? So uh, without getting too far down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Bitcoin, once the, the block reward subsidy, all the all, once all the Bitcoins are mined, um, we'll have to see what happens uh, if the fees are at that point, they're all mined. If the fees are material enough to keep the miners mining uh, to want to, there's no inflation, you know, rewards at that point anymore. There's no subsidy. There's no block reward subsidy. So the fees will need to be material enough for the network to sustain itself. So if they're not, then the, the ga- there could be a, a kind of a hole in the game theory where, you know, why are the miners securing the network if there's not material fees and there's no rewards? That doesn't make any sense. So, And when you're saying miners, because this is another thing people get lost on, the whole concept of Bitcoin that was defined in that white paper was that – 
you needed people to adopt because you needed coders around the world to be able to create the next Bitcoins and be incentivized to do so, meaning they are going in and I'm going to whitewash it and say they're coding away to confirm what's on the blockchain. And then as a result, they are paid a predetermined number of Bitcoins or amount of Bitcoin, I should say, per time that they do that. So you need coders to actually do that. And what you're saying is that if there isn't a price that says this is worth it, like I can actually make money doing this, coders aren't going to want to do that. What I'm saying is once all the Bitcoins are mined and there's no more uh, like inflation and no more, you know, kind of subsidy that the fees for the network, the fees on the network will need to be material enough where the miners are making money and covering their uh, any costs that they have um, and that, you know, it makes sense economically for them. Why to would this. you need miners once all the Bitcoins are mined by and it's year 2140? They'll be done, right? Supposedly. Well, the miners keep the net, you know, they secure the network and they, yeah. you know, verify the network. So, uh, you know, I, I guess largely the question is just around incentives uh, for miners once all of the Bitcoins are mined. So it's a really interesting uh, topic that actually doesn't really get a, talked about a whole lot in the Bitcoin community. That Let's some, go. Sometimes comes up in the Ethereum community, but uh, overall, it's an interesting concept. So back to the original question, um, you know, the there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, kind of according to Satoshi's mm -hmm. spec. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, I think, 18 million or so right now. Um, and they'll, you know, all be mined in the kind of coming years. A little over 18 and a half. Right. Yeah. So um, the market cap of Bitcoin today is about, I need it's to like check. Call it like, 400 we'll billion. Call it 400 billion. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a large, you know, you know, asset, but not large by you know, traditional finance standards, you know, gold for, for comparison is a $9 trillion asset. So pull that mic in a little bit, pull closer. Yep. Testing. Yep. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, regarding the, the supply and then, you know, the inflation is all, you know, uh, transparent and, you know, uh, codified, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, completely, you know, predictable. So the no, no surprises, no, uh, you know, money printing, you know, 60% this year in Bitcoin, you know, it's, it's all predetermined and, and, you know, provable. So, yeah. And that's the other thing when we don't, I kind of mentioned this a, a few minutes ago, but as an example, when Corona hit and we had the big stimulus come in big being a whatever word, but it did cost a lot of money and they didn't just take three, $4 trillion out of a vault. They, put it on the dollar ledger. They said, all right, now there's three, four trillion more dollars. Sure. And so people haven't thought about that. And they look at the stock market, which is back up, you know, to where it was and forget all the things going on in the stock market with the dispersion and all that, just the overall value of like the S&P and the Dow. Are those dollars really worth what they were in, in January? Hypothetically, no. Yeah. That's, that's how a lot of people in the crypto space are thinking about this. Um, you know, the money supply has grown by, uh, you know, material amount um this year um yeah i think a lot of people you know covid um is a really hard thing for a lot of people and this has been a tough time for a lot of folks but i i do think that uh you know covid catalyzed a lot of the stimulus obviously and you know money printing and i think it woke a lot of some folks up saying hey wait a second you know uh is my purchasing power you know uh being infected by this um you know, what implications does this have for my business? For example, Michael Saylor, um, you know, he, he's saying, 
I'm sitting on all this cash, but it's you that's know, the CEO of MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy CEO, yep. yes, yep. Michael Saylor. So, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm sitting on all this cash, but you know, it's 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 depreciating. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's getting basically diluted away with inflation, um, and you know, yeah, it's it's you know, cash is trash. So I'm going to buy Bitcoin with my treasury, and this is a better, uh, you know, use of, of of our you know of our of our balance sheet assets. So I think that. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, um, though. Uh, I guess some comments could be made about the size of the bet um, relative to you know their their overall assets. You know, for example, uh, so there's this website, Bitcoin Treasuries, um, that shows the uh, bitcoins held by uh, com- different companies. So they have MicroStrategy as uh, so the larger holder, largest holder, uh, Square. Um, I have it up here, right behind you. Oh, awesome! So, yeah, Galaxy Digital Holdings is number two. Square is three. Yeah, so you can see that uh, MicroStrategy took a pretty big bet. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot on here. Like, have you seen? And this you before? didn't you didn't see this three years ago. This was not happening. No, this was not. I've not have seen you, this have before. Have you seen this before? No. And I think there is there's some like fo- like Mass Mutual is not on here. Um, not yet. I guess they're they're not. Here, up. turn back to the mic for me. Yeah, sure. So, so for example, uh, MicroStrategy. Um, they, uh, you know, started entering the Bitcoin market uh, shortly after, you know, all this uh, money printing and stimulus started. So uh, it's certainly not a coincidence. And, um, you know, there's there's something to be said about, you know, these type of folks entering, you know, given the amount of, uh, given the kind of, you know, status with the, you know, dollars being printed and whatnot. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 The other thing here, though, is whenever you have something that is, such a bold new idea and this is look in the context of money this is still a new idea i mean people say okay it's 11 years old think about how long trade systems have been around with currency as we know it and how long we've accepted the fact that governments are at the center of this type of thing what bitcoin in the entire space is doing is they are basically taking a giant firecracker or dynamite and blowing up the entire thing and saying no 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 Now the people are going to control it, and the people are going to be backed by the power of the internet who's going to have this code called the blockchain that is able to verify everything that happens and take away all the bad actors that can happen in places like banks and most importantly in places like governments who control the vaults, so to speak, and control what is printed. What I think is a very interesting topic that is not talked about enough in this whole thing, though, that gets lost sure. is how money, like paper money as we know it, around the world, not just here, but back especially in the 19th century and then in America up until 1971 or 1972, paper currency was backed by gold. Sure. So governments would have X amount of gold in their quote-unquote vaults, and they would issue paper currency that was redeemable for that gold. Not that citizens are going to go do that all the time because you can't really carry around gold bullion and go pay for a coffee, mm. but they had the option and it was it had a clear value. And eventually all these governments, especially around World War II or World War I in Europe, went off of the gold standard and then the United States went off the gold standard in the 1970s and basically what they were all saying is, okay, you see this paper currency? We're going to tell you how much it is. We're going to tell you how much of it we print, and we're going to tell you what it's worth, and don't worry. It'll take care of the rest. And Bitcoin basically says, all right, that's human error. We're not going to let that happen. 
this is what it is. This is the total amount, notwithstanding some of the potential that you were saying is at least whispered in some communities, like it won't stop at 21. We'll talk about that later. But this is what it is. Take it or leave it. And by the way, this takes away the inflation risk. Certainly. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a, is a non-sovereign store of value, uh, monetary store of value. So no country owns Bitcoin um, and, uh, you know, you know, it exists without the permission of any country. Um, and that's certainly, uh, you know, a big part of the innovation here. I agree a lot. The, you, a lot is, of there, with me. is there anything a government can do, though? Is there anything <clears> they could, because I know we're starting to see like regulation sure. pop up in the U.S. What is that? What's the story there? So candidly, I haven't looked as closely uh, into the regulation uh, that recently came out from uh, uh, the Treasury yet, but um, this is yesterday, actually. Um, but it, it regards uh, self-hosted wallets. Um, and I'm kind of digesting these, uh, you know, threads from lawyers on Twitter and whatnot and trying to understand and get a better understanding. Um, but uh, I think to answer your question, I think what governments can do to kind of uh, hinder hinder cryptocurrencies is uh, kind of squash or, or uh, you know, uh, put pressure on the on-ramps and off-ramps. So, uh, you know, ways to turn dollars or other t- types of fiat currency into, uh, into coins or, or cryptocurrencies. So uh, places like Coinbase or Square. So um, potentially, you know, putting pressure on on these types of institutions that uh you know are on ramp off ramp you know for turning fiat and and crypto into you know vice versa so um i think that's probably the main thing um or you know just some sort of you know arbitrary you know harsh regulation that is just designed to you know uh you know hinder cryptocurrency so um but i i think you know kind of putting pressure on the on ramps off ramps is probably the first thing that any any government juris you know jurisdiction is going to do if they you know, want to make a point, uh, you know, of it. You bring up the fact there that in particularly they're looking at going after wallets. And that's that's another thing because everyone knows what a wallet is, but they hear it around crypto and they're like, all right, I don't totally get that. So my understanding is that there's two light, and I say my understanding because I never want to assume I know everything about any of this stuff because who the fuck knows? You do. But <laughs> my understanding is that there's basically two potential levels of that. The first level is the one that you mentioned, like a Coinbase, where it is a company. Coinbase is a company that I'll jump hosts. Here in a sec. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. So I would break the wallets up into two buckets, and a lot of folks in crypto will do the same thing. So mm-hmm. let's call them, uh, you know, common kind of uh, nomenclature is, uh, you know, custodial wallets and, mm-hmm. and self-custodial wallets or non-custodial wallets. So a non-custodial, so the kind of you know, important thing to know about crypto is uh, it's a bearer asset, um, meaning a bearer asset. Bearer asset. So you know, you have a so if so if you have a, a self custodial wallet and you have a private key, uh, that's basically the secret that can access the funds, has the ability to spend the funds, you know, can send the funds around. Um, if you lose that private key, uh, you've lost uh, ownership of the crypto. And we, by the way, estimate that as much as 10% of Bitcoin is gone forever because people lost their private key in various ways, whether it be a fire to their hard drive or like they threw it out by accident or whatever, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, so so that's that's kind of the, you know, you know if, you, if you're using a non-custodial wallet, uh, you own your own keys. Um, you have that, you know, private key, you can, you can access it through your, your ledger or your software wallet. Um, but you you own that, and you know you have the ability to you know move that around and, and transfer that and, and whatnot. Um, on the other hand, you have custodial wallets and custodial services like 
uh, Coinbase and Square and, you know, most most every, you know, institution, centralized institution. So uh, when you have coins or, you know, uh, tokens and whatnot in Coinbase, you don't have a private key. So it's kind of there's, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. So if, uh, you know, Hypothetically, if Coinbase, you know, ha- had some huge, you know, catastrophic event happen to them, um, or you know, maybe we won't use Coinbase as an example. Let's use Widget Exchange as an example. If if Widget Exchange has some, you know, uh, horrible, you know, catastrophic event, um, like you know, there's been some some examples over the years. You have a uh, you know, exchanges that have not been solvent and went under, like uh, Quadra Quadra CX. So, uh, yeah, the folks, Mount, the folks, Mount Gox. Mount Gox is the biggest one. So. Uh, yeah, so you know, if these exchanges go under, um, you know, you you don't necessarily have access to the coins. So, uh, with these self-custodial, non-custodial wallets, you know, folks have uh, physical ownership of their coins, and you know, they they own, you know, they have complete control over them. Um, and and not that you know, it doesn't work the same way if you have a custodial wallet. So, yeah, I'm an idiot. The- I have a I have a custodial wallet, but yeah, th- this um, is this is something. Keep and- going on this because this is something that people need to hear because you want to take away. You're already taking a lot of responsibility for yourself by getting a currency outside the system, but you also don't want to. You don't want to add more risk to your situation and then be yeah. able to potentially lose it through no fault of your own. Um, yeah, I think you know this is something that a lot of people get hung up on with custodial versus non-custodial wallets, but candidly, I, I don't know that you know, maybe some of the institutions coming in Yeah, well, they, they, their mandate doesn't allow them to do self custody generally. So they need to use a third party custodian where they can put the coins, uh, you know, folks like Coinbase custody or, uh, you know, uh, Bitco or other, other custody providers. Uh, there's a number of them, um, fidelity. Uh, so they can, you know, custody the coins with them. Um, and then just hope that they don't get hacked. Hope that nothing bad happens. Where, as you mentioned, like a run happens on one of those, on one of those companies, and then they can't, they don't have the assets to be able to sure. give you your Bitcoin. I guess my point there was that um, a lot of of these institutions that are coming in, like probably they can't self custody, and they probably don't even care about self custody. Like they're in crypto to make money or you know generate returns, generate yield. Um, so I think that. Uh, this co- this kind of self custody you know uh, co- topic might be you know kind of overblown with you know or you know pr- thought of you know re- as really important with like kind of the early movers but like the kind of next wave of folks that are entering the space like you know may, may they might not care as much or um, you know so it's it's interesting concept but my understanding is that the the new regulation from the treasury um, has to do with self hosted wallets uh, aka non custodial wallets mm-hmm. so. It's designed to, uh, you know, somehow impact. Yeah. Have you read uh, what's his name? Ben Mesrick's book, Bitcoin Billionaires. I actually have not read Ben Mesrick's book, Bitcoin Billionaires, though. Um, I think very highly of the Winklevoss twins, and, yeah. and uh, want to read it. Yeah, it's. I mean, you can read it in a few hours. It's. It's not long, and I think it's something that if if you are at all interested in this stuff and you know nothing about it. That's a great place to start because Ben Mesrick, people that, are, that don't know, he's the guy who wrote The Social Network. He wrote the book that became the movie 21, where the MIT students went out to Vegas and like actually bet for real. He's written a whole bunch of other stuff. Like He's got a long, long list, and he's in, an incredible writer. But he wrote this book, Bitcoin Billionaires, I guess last year, 2019, that was an unintended 
spinoff of the social network, actually. Sure. As you mentioned, Cole, it involves the Winklevoss twins, who some people remember from the movie where Army Hammer played the two of them. They were the guys who were claiming that they had been a part of the invention of Facebook, and Zuckerberg said no, and Zuckerberg ended up winning out. And they were very easy to make fun of in pop culture because they were these tall, good-looking men of Harvard, you know, all that stuff, whatever all that bullshit was. And so they did get made fun of a lot. And then they were the enemy of the most powerful guy or one of the most powerful guys in tech, technically, after they ended up settling the lawsuit they had against Zuckerberg back in 2008. But this book, where Mesrick went back and covered them, takes you through the years immediately after that settlement in 2008. So they, they settled, I think it was for $65 million, but they took $45 million of it in stock, in Facebook stock. And they took all this public making fun of them and, and everything, just completely took it on the chin, no problem. And they ended up through a whole bunch of trap doors getting into the Bitcoin community just on a total off chance very early on, like yeah. maybe 2011, something like that. Yeah. And so they realized what the power of this was and they looked at it like oh my god we were there and we felt like we got fucked out of being a part of running the first real social network but now we're there for the other social network that has actually been around longer than in, than anything else which is money yeah. and when you go through this stuff and see what they did i mean I, I assume you're very familiar with their work in the space obviously yeah certainly so uh I think, uh, as I just mentioned, I think very highly of them, and I think they're uh, super interesting folks. But um, yeah, from my my understanding of watching a few interviews with them, is they entered the space, um, started buying a bunch of bitcoins around a hundred dollars or maybe high high single digits. I think, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> yeah, they they made a concerted effort to buy a ton of bitcoin, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously appreciated materials materially since then. They also have an exchange business called Gemini, but. Um, and that's specifically in uh, involving all crypto, right? Right. So Gemini is a like crypto asset exchange. Uh, uh, it's actually, I think it's a, a New York trust company. So it's a, mm. it's one of the more uh, you know regulated exchanges, and uh, you know thought of highly for that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an exchange uh, similar to you know Coinbase or Kraken or a number of other exchanges. Um, but uh, yeah, you know they also, they own a ton of Bitcoin, um, and I you know I think their thesis largely is around digital gold. So they compare Bitcoin to uh, to gold, um, and I think you know my understanding is that they uh, have been comparing Bitcoin to gold for a number number of years. It's kind of always been their thesis, and uh, you know they they kind of stack up Bitcoin against this you know nine trillion dollar uh, you know um, gold market cap. So if you do some quick math. Um, so if you have, well, I guess my we're, at four, we're at four hundred billion right now for Bitcoin, and then it's right, nine so, trillion for gold. So it's still early ball game in so that scenario. Yeah. So if you kind of use gold as a comp, then Bitcoin has orders of magnet or an order of magnitude or, or so more upside. So for you know, that's kind of how I think kind of that camp of folks is thinking about things. But I think that uh, you know they they've done a lot of great work for the space, um, and there, there's certainly you know it's a small space. Um, you know, it's early. Um, the market cap's only four hundred billion, um, only. But uh, you know, it's uh, you know, if, if you compare it to you know the internet or something like that, um, the growth you know trajectory, it's, I think it's still very early on. So I agree with um, you. We'll have to see how the next few years unfold, but um, I'm very uh, very optimistic.
Yeah, the, and I think one of the big supporters of your argument that it's very early on is is because people who are now still sitting at home nine months later, ten months later into coronavirus are looking around looking for the next stimulus check. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, we got the little bump up front. What's $1,200? And they're still looking at it like, oh, the dollars are going to kind of come in and save us. And again, don't blame them. But that just kind of goes to show you there's not enough people who are looking and going, wait, hold on a second. I'm still being told to sit at home by the government here. Maybe I lost my job. I don't have money coming in. What is my money even worth at this point? Did I lose my house? at the? Like a lot of people are thinking that. Like, all right, I might be out of the house I was in. All these basic things are happening to them that are pulling their whole life down and they're still not realizing that like, hey, part of it is the fact that whatever number is still left in my bank account ain't worth much or it's not worth nearly as much as it was. And so when you say it's early days here, yeah. I mean, there is a reason why there's still crypto Twitter, right? There's still sure. Bitcoin Twitter. There's still Ethereum Twitter. There's still all yep. these quote unquote little communities because it's like for every, I'll throw out a random number that's not real, but just to make the point. For every hundredth person you know, maybe that's the person that actually is somewhat aware of this stuff. Well, there's 330 million people in this country to say nothing of the world, and 330 million people do involve on trading money. So you can't just have one out of a hundred aware of this stuff for it to actually be mainstream and to be an accepted form of currency. So when you say, like, we're early ballgame, we are because no one's looking at it that way. But the second level to it is the other point you make about looking at Bitcoin as gold. And so we know, I think we talked about this earlier too, we know that like gold itself is not used as a currency, but historically when it was at its best for what it's supposed to be used for, it was used to back the currencies. Sure. So we need something that's easier to go around. So what I want to move this to is stuff you've already floated into a little bit that I pulled you back into Bitcoin just to keep it simple. But you keep on talking about Ethereum. And this is your world. Uh, now, obviously, Bitcoin's your world too, but you focus heavily on DeFi, which is decentralized finance. I think you said that yep. too. But explain to people first what Ethereum is, and then the second part, also explain how it integrates in a world with Bitcoin, or does it have to be one or the other? Sure. So, great question. So, Ethereum... Um, is a platform, uh, a smart contract platform. So what that means is uh, it's a platform for creating uh, autonomous and unstoppable applications. So once an application is deployed onto the Ethereum mainnet, it's there forever. Uh, it can, and how do you do that? You can do that um, a number of different ways, but um, basically by taking some Solidity code, um, which is the smart contract uh smart contract language, uh, Ethereum smart contract language. Um, there's also another one called Viper that can be used. And uh, take the Solidity code and use a, uh, an IDE like Remix or another tool to deploy that to the mainnet. So, Can I uh, pull this back to English real quick just to keep us on track? Yeah, sure. So if I know a coder, I'm a normal uh, guy. You know, so yeah, so uh, crypto is and a lot of other softwares are open source. Um, so there's a lot of great examples mm -hmm. out there already. So you can find uh, on GitHub or pretty easily with a Google search, uh, the code that you'll need yep. to deploy a token, for example. So uh, once you have that code, you can, you know, maybe tweak a few different uh, parameters. So maybe change uh, the token name, the symbol, um, a few other things. 
and with a limited amount of changes and pretty, you know, basically a copy and paste, um, can deploy, uh, this token onto Ethereum, uh, by, uh, you know, using this IDE, which is remix. Mm -hmm. So using, uh, basically a, a tool to deploy, um, to the, to the network and paying a small amount of ETH for the transaction fees. So, and that's uh, called gas yeah, right? for gas. Yeah. So, uh, for every transaction in Ethereum network, uh, you, uh, user or, uh, you know, some network participant is required to uh, pay some small transaction fee in ETH. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, basically with Ethereum, uh, you know, anyone, anywhere in the world can deploy, um, an application, um, that's powered by smart contracts, um, with just a little bit of Ethereum and, uh, little bit of solidity code and uh you know remix ide or something so and, and when they do this smart contract if, if i'm just going on there to do it it could be something like let's say it's you and me so julian and cole are going on there to write a smart contract onto the ethereum code or blockchain it could be me saying cole this contract i'm gonna agree to pay you 50 dollars on the first of every month for 12 months we're going to code that in, and then once it's on there, that is the agreement, and it's set, and it can't be changed, and it's publicly accessible to be able to say that it happened. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so l l let me explain how that kind of contract could work. So, uh, say you had, uh, you know, $1,200, and uh, you said, okay, Cole, I'm going to pay you $100 for the next, uh, for the next 12 months. So, mm -hmm. I'm going to pay you on the first day of every month uh, $100. So, after 12 months, I'll have paid you uh, all of $1,200 I have. So um, a Ethereum smart contract developer or you, or whoever, um, could write a smart contract that says, there's actually a protocol that kind of does this already, but you, you basically could deposit, or a user could deposit their uh, $1,200 into a smart contract and basically uh, stream the money um, every, every first day of every month. So every mm -hmm. certain amount of time that happens on the chain, uh, the money will get sent on the uh, roughly the first day of every month. So, um, yeah, basically, you know, kind of codifying, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, different, you know, interactions uh, with smart contracts. So, um, so once once you you or a user put the money into the smart contract, uh, you know, it, it could be streamed, um, you know, to uh, to an, to another user or myself. So, um, you know, that that's kind of a simple example. Now. To push back on that, some people may say right away, why can't we just do that on our own or do it through a bank like we always have? What is the upside there to having to go code something on the Ethereum blockchain and using Ethereum, using ETH along the way as well, just to do it? Sure. So there's a protocol out there. Uh, it's not a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty well-known protocol, but called Sableer protocol. So yep. this basically can be done. Uh, already with some, something that someone else built. Um, so it's kind of a application that someone else built that, um, you know, can enable this type of uh, transactions I just described. But, um, you know, say uh, you want to pay a contractor that's in another country. Um, say they're in, you know, you know, somewhere else around the world and, you know, um, you know, they don't have access to uh, to Chase Bank or, you know, TD, Ameritra mm -hmm. TD Bank or something. Yep. So you say, okay, um, you know, I want to send you PayPal. I want to send you a hundred dollars. Um, but they say, Oh wow, there's like a $4 fee. I'm just lost 4%. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's not great. That's 4% of my, you know, of my earnings, um, you know, from, you know, what you're paying them for. So they say, wow, that, that kind of sucks. Um, 
if there's a better only if there's a better way so the, the well there is a better way it's crypto and bitcoin and, and ethereum and stable coins so um yeah so you know uh the the advantage is that you know users can send money to each other um, and it's instantaneous the fee the gas in this case as we called it is significantly less than four percent it's like usually actually i don't want to speak out of my ass but it's low right generally yeah generally generally low and you also point out the problem and people don't realize this especially in this country we don't think about this as much even though there are some that this applies to in this country unfortunately but there's i believe last statistic taken it's like there's 1.7 billion people around the world who do not have access to a bank account so that's you know you got seven seven and a half billion people in the world that's a significant number and it presents a lot of problems for them to be able to transact in a modern economy when in fact a lot of these people do have access to the internet right right. that's what i was just going to jump in so a lot of these folks that don't have access to bank accounts they do have access to mobile phones and other things so uh they can very easily have a ethereum wallet or a bitcoin wallet um uh, while it's you know this big big lift to get a bank account, so um, yeah, you know at, at its essence, you know Ethereum and, and DeFi enable uh, you know financial services for for everyone around the world, um, and uh, yeah, it's super super amazing. You use that Sablier example though, and one of the things I don't understand about them, and to be clear, Sablier, how would you define that? Is that a protocol? Uh, so it's a protocol built on ethereum um the way they kind of frame it is like a is like streaming money so is it a is sablier a company uh it's more like an app like it's kind of like an open source app that um i don't think it's monetized like to uh i don't think they i don't know how they monetize it it's kind of just like software but the thing that i wasn't fully sure of there i get it in the sense that it allows instantaneous payment when a lot of payments especially international can take a week two weeks whatever you have currency risk when you do it you also have more fees i get all that part of it but there's also they talk about the concept of like a minute by minute payment so like if i'm a contractor and i Mm -hmm. say i'm gonna do consulting work on x for you for two hours if i only do 90 minutes or something then I shouldn't be paid for two hours. And so something about Sablier tracks that. Uh, so, that's what I'm Yeah, basically on. it's like getting paid in real time uh, via some, you know, smart contract that's kind of streaming money, um, you know, pro rata in real time. So mm. that's kind of the, the kind of concept going on there. Um, I, you know, there's definitely some, you know, ways that folks can play devil's advocate on um, with this, um, you know, saying like, you know, why can't I just send money? Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's it's predictable and, you know, uh, just kind of an example of, you know, how smart contracts can be used. Um, how, how long has Ethereum been around? Uh, so Ethereum was conceptualized in 2013, I believe it was 2013. The main, the uh, token sale or fundraiser uh, took place in 2014. And that was for ETH. Right. Um, for ETH, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I need to I need to double check those dates, uh, the years. I, I always forget, actually. Um, but, no <laughs> anyways, worries. Ethereum popped That's what up. I'm here for the. Uh, uh, I don't know why I, you know, work full time in the space for a number of years, but I always forget uh, the exact timeline. You've you. forgotten more in about a minute than I've known okay. in my entire life. So yeah, we'll we'll so... take it. So it was proposed in 2013 by programmer Vitalik Buterin. Now that was the next question. So this was, we know who created this, and you've met Vitalik, I believe, right? 
Uh, yep, met Vitalik a few times. Um, uh, anyways, so Vitalik is a really smart, um, you know, cryptocurrency entrepreneur, obviously. Um, so he originally um, was hacking on Bitcoin, and he realized that Bitcoin, uh, the smart, the uh, programming language for Bitcoin, and just Bitcoin largely, was not expressive enough to build the type of things that he thought that he could build. So. Um, so basically Vitalik, uh, went out and said, you know, okay, well I can't build these awesome things I want with Bitcoin. So there needs to be something else. So can, that's kind of the advent of Ethereum. So when, when he says build, I just want to make sure. Yeah. So he was basically trying to build applications that, you know, involved, you know, maybe something that looked like a smart contract, uh, something like this, but Bitcoin, you know, the you know, infrastructure of Bitcoin and just what you're able to do with, you know, Bitcoin script, which is this programming language around Bitcoin, um, was not expressive enough for him to build, you know, these, these type of applications he wanted to build. It was kind of limiting, um, and, uh, basically needed some, you know, a more generalized, uh, you know, platform like Ethereum, um, with smart contracts. Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, the origin of it. Right. Because Bitcoin is, is basically strictly, the bitcoins that are created that are literally viewed as some sort of value that people agree upon is going to be x value in this case it's traded relative to dollars that people can see as far as like the main currency that they can judge it against and so when it comes to other things like creating derivatives lending out money and writing code to be able to do that insurance uh, creating investment products, which derivatives are investment products, but I'm saying like actual exchanges, uh, yep. ETF-like things. You yep. can't do any of that on Bitcoin. So Vitalik looked at this and said, okay, I want to make an ecosystem where you can do all of this, and underneath it, it's backed by its own quote-unquote currency, which would be a cryptocurrency, and it'll be Ethereum. Now, does my question is, does Vitalik... I definitely saw this somewhere, but I can't remember right now. Does Vitalik still believe in Bitcoin as well? Does he think they can both exist together? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I think – I can't speak for V, Vitalik, but um, I think that, you know – you're, per- you're on a first-name basis with him. I love it. <laughs> uh, not really, but, I, th- you know, he's V. Um, so <laughs> I think that – personally, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum – definitely coexist you know so we're i, I can basically point to to one uh you know example that really stands out so there's something that's popped up in the last uh you know last year last year last two years so called uh, wbtc so wbtc is short for wrapped bitcoin and what wrapped bitcoin is is it's basically uh a token on ethereum that's backed by bitcoin so it's it's a collateralized bitcoin on ethereum uh it's a token that's collateralized by bitcoin that is on ethereum so um so there's now about three billion dollars of wrapped Bitcoin um, on Ethereum. So there's that's that's basically one that's around one percent of the supply of Bitcoin. So, so that means that people yeah. people came in with Bitcoin, yep, and they put it onto the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah, it, yep, yep, and then they used it. They borrowed money to then be or loaned out money. Um, so in a different form, uh, kind of. So it's more like they uh, they go to um, so there's like I think the way WBTC did it was they had like these merchants that basically could take Bitcoin and you know wrap it into WBTC. I think they had some uh, maybe some regulatory um, you know 
those those merchants sure, kind sure. of went through some some onboarding process and whatnot. But uh, yeah, basically, folks took Bitcoin, vanilla Bitcoin that kind of just you know exists, you know maybe in you know their their whichever wallet, and they took it and they they wrapped it on Ethereum, and then from there. The Bitcoin that's now on Ethereum, now WBTC, it can be used in all of these different DeFi applications. It can be used as collateral to borrow stable coins. It can be used as, um, you know, you can you can use that Bitcoin to provision liquidity to an exchange. You can use uh, the WBTC to, um, you know, do a number of different things. So uh, I think WBTC has a lot more utility than BTC. Um, and it's, it's actually pretty interesting um, that, you know, uh, yeah, there's $3 billion of WBTC now. And, uh, I think that's, uh, only going up. Um, I don't see, you know, there, there's, you know, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. Cause on, on one Ethereum. of the, one of the problems with Bitcoin problems, quote unquote, is that the, because you need miners to confirm the transaction, there is a limitation on speed as far as like how quickly you can transfer it. Now, is it better than, a, like I always use the example, if I'm a car company and I have a plant in Mexico City and a plant in South Korea, moving a billion dollars between Mexico City and South Korea is a bitch. I mean, it could take, even if you're a powerful company, it could take five days. You got to bring in Wall Street to hedge against the inflation risk or not the inflation risk, the currency risk. Sure. You got to bring in banks slash Wall Street to actually execute on the middle. You got to bring in governments who have full view into all transactions and decide to take their piece, all that stuff. But with Bitcoin, even though it may be faster than that, it's still not like it does not settle at the rate and precision that things like on Ethereum can do. So uh, there's an Ethereum block every six minutes or seven minutes. What does like. that mean, an Ethereum block? I um, know what that means, but let's just define it. So it's a, you know, it's basically a, uh, you know, uh, a new block that's a new copy of the the ledger that basically, um, you know, all the new transactions have, you know, been added to that block. So anyone that coded on the Ethereum blockchain and put a smart contract on there, like we talked about is a part of that block. Whoever did it over a five minute or five hour, whatever it is span that that block took part. Sure. So, yep, yep. Any new transactions, any new contracts deployed, all of that type of stuff would be included in a new block and that's basically recorded in the blockchain. So any new block is kind of a uh, new, you know, piece of history, new new recording in the blockchain, um, on the blockchain that's, you know, getting added to this, this permanent ledger. Um, so basically what I'm getting at is that Ethereum has... Uh, you know, produces blocks more frequently than than Bitcoin. Um, so as to say, it's uh, it should be faster. Now, it, Ethereum can get congested at times. There's a lot of lot of users. Um, yeah, so I guess it depends on the amount of usage on the network. But uh, overall, yeah, Bitcoin, Ethereum um, uh, is generally faster than Bitcoin. Um, and there's a lot of efforts uh, around scaling it even further. Um, so. You have things like uh, layer two scaling solutions, and I'm I'm re getting really down the rabbit hole it's here. It's okay. But Keep going. Layer two scaling solutions are basically, um, you know, a solution to uh, to scale um, to scale Ethereum with kind of a, uh, and you know, a, a different approach. Like, uh, I guess it's a lot of semantics at this point, but like state channels or plasma or uh, zk rollups, optimistic rollups. So, so that's a lot of lot of jargon. But basically, uh, these you know solutions to make Ethereum faster um, and you know you know allow it to have you know uh, 
you know, greater throughput, these type of things. So yeah, Ethereum is, is definitely capable of being faster and largely is capable, largely is faster than, than in Bitcoin. And I have a question on this. And, and before I do that, I, I do want to, I feel like I should do this. I, I do want to disclose when it comes to my crypto assets, I only own two, um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I'm about 94 to 95% Bitcoin and about 5, 6% Ethereum. So obviously my knowledge and scale of bet is clearly on the Bitcoin side and Ethereum still something I'm reading books on and learning a lot about. And it's very, very interesting to me. But you talk about the idea that you get this continued adoption, continued use that also then has smart minds coming in there and building new smart contracts to basically solve for previous holdups and holes that occurred as you were getting adoption. So maybe things weren't settling fast enough and guys come in and specifically write code to be able to then settle things faster in the future. Basically plug any holes in the boat. I get that. Where Ethereum certainly has a downside in my mind comparatively, just in how I can picture it, is the fact that there is technically no limited supply. So you don't have a cap like Bitcoin has a cap. They create a literal value of it's not going to go past 21. And I know we talked about the one scenario where it could, but for all intents and purposes of the argument, it's, that's not going to happen. It's so written in. Ethereum doesn't have of, that. Yeah, so... While Ethereum doesn't have a cap, um, there's this initiative happening, um, and I'm kind of getting a bit granular here, but called the EIP-1559. And what's going on with EIP-1559 is that uh, it's basically a proposal so that every time um, Ethereum transaction uh, occurs, that a little bit of ETH gets burned. So basically, it's a value accrual mechanism that's uh, going to be added to the Ethereum you know, protocol. So... This is really promising because if there's a lot of uh, transactions happening on Ethereum, a lot of ETH can get burned. And this could actually result in a negative issuance uh, for Ethereum if there's uh, enough transactions and, and whatnot going on. So in that case, Ethereum can become more scarce and, and more deflationary than Bitcoin. And you also think, though, that scarcity doesn't necessarily imply value. That was something... That was an interesting point to me because you don't hear people say that much. They say the opposite. They're like, the more scarce it is, the more I want it, which in theory is correct. But what do you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, anyone can mint a token that's, that has 10 million tokens or 1,000 tokens. And, you know, it's certainly scarce, but it, there's no network effect and nobody knows correct. about it. It's not valuable. So that's kind of my angle there. Um, you know, just because something's scarce, like, does not imply value, Um you know, well, bit, it, Bitcoin got sold for two pizzas. Someone sold 10,000 Bitcoins for two pizzas back in 2010. So, yeah, it had a day where it had no network. It was a joke on on deep web internet feeds and it and had no value. And eventually, and we talked about it doesn't have enough adoption yet, which is true, but it got it, – it actually started to get people in different places around the world to be like, ooh, I get it. I'm a part of this. I'm in this community. So you built up a big enough base that now you have – I, I'm pulling this from my photographic memory as best I can. I think it was – there's like 70 million people around the world who own at least some Bitcoin at this point. So you have some network effect there. So that scarcity then creates value, whereas to your point, if, if I just create a token right now and say there's only 10,000 of them, I got to get people to fucking buy into it. Yeah. So, you know, scarcity matters when there's like, you know – 
network effects and demand but if there's no demand then scarcity is just not really a you know, important. Um, but yeah, so certainly scarcity is, is some, one of the, definitely the value propositions about Bit- of Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's, there's only 21 million and, uh, you know, it's provably so. So, um, you know, I, I don't think scarcity is, uh, it's certainly important and, you know, interesting. Um, I just think that, you know, a lot of folks uh, kind of get caught up on it maybe too much and think less about, you know, you know, payments around the world or, you know, uh, store value that you know, uh, non-sovereign store value. Like these things excite excite me more than um, than that. Well, this also you talk about like people who pay attention to one thing in this case scarcity. And look, that's a that's one of the most common champion thoughts in the Bitcoin community. Obviously, sure. But you're also wading into a territory that's important, which is the tribalism that's been created in this. So when you look at the fact that throughout the 2010s, for most of them, until maybe 2017, where you got a small level of awareness and adoption, you had a long period of time there where there was only certain individuals who were in the know and who were in these communities, and they were the earliest adopters, right? And we're still in in an early adopter mode right now, but these are like the earliest of the earliest. And so as other ideas started to rise up, whether it be Ethereum or XRP or Litecoin or all these, and then all these shit coins that came up that were trying to solve for inefficiencies that they identified on Bitcoin, in some cases where they wanted to take out Bitcoin, in other cases where they wanted to maybe support it and be another value add. As this all happened, you created all these teams, especially obviously online, where people pick their squad and they live or they die with it. (laughs) And so especially on Twitter, it's the best example to use because it's where a lot of people within crypto go to communicate, but you could say Reddit too. You see these communities on CryptoTwit as an example, which is like its own big space, but then within it, you have Bitcoin Twitter and Ethereum Twitter and even like XRP Twitter sure. and stuff and all these people who live in these echo chambers and just yell bang, 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 bang about their currency and then they – I mean it's not even like a discussion with other tribes. It's not like you don't see as many people. Like you're a guy who legitimately is just all about the space. It's a beautiful thing. It's why I like talking with you. But there are so many people who are like, yo, fuck Ethereum or like, yo, fuck Bitcoin or like, yo, fuck XRP. And there's no ability to hear anything else. And it's scary because then you have to remember there are people who are just coming into this space who are trying to look at a new way to do money. And they're, they come in and they're like, wait, why are all these people fucking fighting about this shit? Like, I just want to know what's what. Yeah, I think the tribalism, you know, on Twitter, maybe it just gets, there's a lot of, you know, noise. But, um, you know, I think that uh, <clears throat> there's still a lot of building and, uh, you know, interoperability between these different protocols. So I think, you know, a lot of folks realize that we need interoperability between protocols. So uh, if you think of the early days of the internet, um, if you think of like Gmail versus, and Gmail and Yahoo, so, or something like that, like Gmail and Hotmail, AOL and Hotmail. Um, If these email clients could not communicate, the network effects would not be nearly as uh, significant. So if you could not send email from, uh, Hotmail to AOL or AOL to mm-hmm. Yahoo, you know, this, the impact that, you know, the, the network effects and, you know, the, just the overall scale of this would just not be the same. So I think similar thing, think similarly about crypto is that, you know, value flowing from these different blockchains, um, different networks, um, 
it, it'll be good for for them to interoperate and probably necessary so uh you know while there's like this kind of tribalism like online now um we're all working towards this kind of like you know you know sovereignty and um you know the bigger picture so uh you know day to day i think folks can get caught up in the tribalism but the bigger picture is that we're we're kind of all on the same team and you know growing this you know ecosystem i think there's a big thought in there of people you know taking the peter Thiel zero to one concept of monopolies are good and and that's what there needs to be there needs to be and that's there's a lot more detail to that i'm not going to go down there but the basic definition was that like competition is actually bad if like someone's not winning because there needs to be a clear main winner of value as an example obviously google is the clear main winner of value when it comes to search engines and among other things and you even pointed out like gmail versus yahoo a lot more people with Gmail now than Yahoo because Google created a better product, at least in the eyes of a lot of people. So I think within – when I look on – like I love being 3,000 feet or 30,000 feet in the air with like the crypto Twitter. I, I look at all of them and it's just funny to me. But when I see these people, I think they're so worried about the fact that it's like, oh, well, if we don't win all out on whatever it is our – team is whether it be you know ethereum bitcoin xrp the link mafia like all these people it's like then we're, we're not gonna have anything like there there can only be us or nobody else and that's where especially ethereum and that's why i asked about this earlier that's where ethereum is just so interesting to me because again you said you didn't know where vitalik stands and i don't know either but he's just a creator he created this open source product to me it looks like it can be something that is built with Bitcoin in the ecosystem and then taking that to the next level because Bitcoin is such a – it is a a one-dimensional idea, which I think is what makes it great, by the I, way. Yeah, it creates that whole concept of like, oh, is Bitcoin just a way better, even more scarce gold with mass adoption where people really believe in it? And then again, when I see like 70 million people around the world owning it, it's like – and you know that I think the numbers – as of like a couple months ago, the numbers near 70% of people have held their Bitcoin for at least a year. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, yeah. that's a beautiful thing because that means people are like, oh, I'm viewing this as not just like a hedge against inflation, but I'm viewing this as like a long-term asset that I want to accrue to be able to protect myself against bad actors among humans, which happen in governments more than anything. Sure, yeah. I think you make a lot of interesting points there. Um yeah, I've seen a bunch of analysis on like how frequently Bitcoins move and, and similar analysis for Ethereum. And I think that analysis is very interesting because you can get a sense of the long-term holders um, and, you know, how many of them there are, you know, how many coins are, you know, moving, kind of like these type of things. So, um, namely, I, I've seen uh, there was a good report a while back from this uh, research shop uh, called Delphi, Delphi Digital. Um about you know kind of like these these kind of like i think they were calling them like hodl waves or something so like how how long folks were holding their coins for which i, I find that research really fascinating um but but yeah um you know uh yeah it's certainly uh you know a space that um that is growing and and i, I think um we'll, we'll see bitcoin and ethereum continue to, to to hit back on the other point we'll see bitcoin and ethereum continue to uh you know kind of coexist and um you know work together i think the, all this Bitcoin on Ethereum on, on WBTC, and you know a large amount of that is uh, in DeFi applications. Like this is really powerful, and I think uh, you know this is just getting started. So um, it's hard to say how early we are in DeFi, um, but 
you know, if I had to compare like where DeFi is and its growth to Bitcoin, it's got to be like, you know, 2012 or 2013, something like that. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's obviously early for crypto as a whole, it's super early for DeFi um, and Ethereum. So um, I'm more optimistic on the space about the space than, than ever before. It is amazing how quickly this is happening in, in, in context. I mean, to your point, even seeing something like Ethereum have the overall adoption it has now, what's it at? Like in the collateral side alone, it's like one point something billion locked in or two point something billion locked in. Yeah. So now on the DeFi side of things, there's, uh, uh, we can check DeFiPulse.com, but I think there's like 15 billion locked in DeFi apps. Um, yeah, wow. And the market cap of Ethereum now is That's like, all DeFi apps, though. That's all DeFi apps. Right. Built the on collaterals, Ethereum. though, itself, like uh, meaning people putting up money is in like the 2 billion handler or something? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, no, so it's it's putting up collateral is like is a synonymous with the DeFi apps. So basically, um, all that 15 billion is, is effectively uh, collateral in different apps. Um, some of it is like, Collateral, really? collateral at exchanges but yeah yeah it's it's so pull up defipulse.com yeah I, all right i totally missed a boat there because i thought that like when we're looking at things like some of the ex, some of the um like investment vehicles on there for for example pull, pull up defi pulse and we can go through that like that, that could be a good exercise i thought that that was a separate count so i didn't know it got that high it really exploded this year yeah so wow 16 billion <sighs> defi yeah, um, sorry, I misspoke big time. No, no worries. That's why we check this stuff. <laughs> so the number one is Maker. Number two is uh, is WBTC. And what what's Maker again? So Maker is the uh, the Dai stablecoin system. So it's basically the synthetic dollar, uh, aka Dai. Um, okay. That's uh, let's talk about that. Collateralized by ETH. Yeah, sure. So Maker is one of the earliest uh, Ethereum apps uh, or DeFi apps. Um, it's kind of a started before the word DeFi was like the term DeFi was like even kind of uh, even a thing. So they've been going for a while, but basically uh, what they've built is <clears throat> the system kind of like asset-based uh, lending system. So uh, their system allows uh, users to uh, post collateral. So they can post uh, ETH, WBTC, which we just talked about, mm -hmm. a number of other different types of cro uh, crypto assets. And they can post that uh, crypto, uh, you know, as collateral to the protocol and they can borrow uh, stablecoin DAI uh, against it. So basically, the users, they always need to maintain a sufficient collateralization ratio that's slightly over-collateralized at like roughly 100, 150%, 130%, so that uh, the value of their of their debt does not uh, exceed that you know collateralization ratio. All right, so, two questions. First... You said that Dai is a U.S. dollar-backed stablecoin. So let's first, not, say what that what that means. Sure. So, so, so Dai is actually not uh, a fiat collateralized stablecoin, meaning there's not dollars in a bank uh, that correspond with the Dai Dai tokens. Um, Dai is actually backed by ETH. So, uh, through this mechanism, Dai. So basically, Dai is is a uh, you know backed by ETH, but it's 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 pegged to the U.S. dollar. So it's a synthetic dollar. Um, so there, there's other stablecoins out there like uh, USDC, um, the Paxos stablecoin, Tether, that are actually backed by, uh, you know, U.S. dollars and, and cash equivalents. So uh, those are those are, you know, fiat collateralized stablecoins. Uh, 
DAI is a crypto collateralized stablecoin, and uh, it exists entirely on chain. There's no bank account um, that you know DAI, that USD is deposited to, and uh, the corresponding DAI is minted. So, okay, uh, let me, let me pull this back for a second because I don't want to I don't want to go too deep and lose people. When we're saying collateralization, let's use an example that a lot of us can understand. If I agree to take on a mortgage, yes, right? I own, I buy a house, maybe I put some equity in and I put a down payment in up front and maybe I put a 20% down payment and then there's 80% left and that becomes my mortgage. That mortgage, the bank having paid for the house up front in order to get paid the mortgage with interest over time, the collateral is the home because if I don't pay it, they take my home. So on the Ethereum so network, let me, let me let's talk about collateral. So let's use like a home equity loan as an example. So okay. if someone has a home and they want to borrow some amount of money against their home to, to you know finance something or something like that, um, they can go to, uh, I guess, a lender like a bank and or another lender and they can say, Okay, I'm using my my home or you know whoever issues these you know home equity loans, but uh, some agency or something. So they can go to these you know these entities and say, okay, I I'm gonna you know use I'm gonna borrow against my my home um, with this home equity loan. So I guess it's a similar concept, uh, you know, uh, with crypto. So if someone was to say, okay, I want to borrow against my Bitcoin or I want to borrow against my ETH, so you know. Home is is an example I'm using, but um, I guess any asset uh, that can be posted as margin or collateral somewhere um, could fit this bill. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean by posted as collateral. So basically, when I say posted as collateral, a user is depositing those tokens or that Bitcoin or that ETH into a smart contract on Ethereum and can subse- subsequently do something with you know this this uh, you know they can borrow against it or do something like this. So if they borrow against it, they are able to access the funds they receive back. And we started this example with die in that case, but they need to have up front 150% worth of what they borrow. So maybe they get, I'm just using yeah. round numbers. Maybe they put up 10 ETH and then get seven. And I know this isn't the exchange rate, but they get seven die back. They sure. only now have access to that seven die. So what what is the... What is the need for them? What is the impetus for people to want to put up collateral? Yeah, sure. So the impetus is that uh, someone wants liquidity and they don't want to sell their their underlying collateral. And this could be yep. for a number of reasons. So they might, uh, <clears throat> you know, they might, you know, want to be long that crypto. They think it's going up. They don't want to sell, so they, you know, can draw some stablecoin against it, borrow stablecoin against it, and um, they can uh, get liquidity that way. Um, uh, that's probably, you know, in one way or another, getting, you know, just getting some sort of liquidity is kind of what's going on. Um, whether they're using that liquidity to actually buy something, say someone has, you know, $100,000 worth of ETH and they want to buy a car, they can, you know, they could put that, that ETH in a, in a maker, uh, you know, CDP, also known as Vault, and they could, you know, borrow, uh, die against it and go purchase something with it. At the same time, they could also, uh, borrow die and uh, swap that for ETH and basically get levered long ETH. So then there's a number of reasons someone w- would want to use Maker um, or another similar service. Um, and I will say all of this stuff can be done on Ethereum uh, with no central, with no third party, 
no permission, no authorization from from anyone else. So, you know, these t- these financial products are publicly available um, on the blockchain, uh, and um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept. Now, the second layer to it is the value of doing this over doing it in traditional systems. So. In a previous life, I was a banker, as you know. And so with some of our clients, a very common thing I would do with a lot of guys was what was called a loan management account. And the way it worked was it was basically a bridge loan for as long as they wanted it. And it operated at LIBOR plus or, or prime plus a couple points, depending on how many how much assets they had with the bank, how much in assets they had with the bank. And I'll just use an example to explain how this worked. One guy, he wanted to, he bought a a home in California and the cost of the home was like 18 million. And then he immediately wanted to knock it down and build a new home. And the entire project to do it was going to cost like 24 or 25 million. This guy was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So no problem. He could pay for that, but had a lot of money tied up in in businesses, right? Because he he owns some rather large companies. And so he didn't want to just pay the $24 million or he didn't want to take a traditional loan on it as the other side of it. So what he said is like, I'm thinking of just paying this eventually like when I want to, but can I draw against assets I have and just get like a bridge loan? This is where the LMA comes in. Mm -hmm. So he needed, call it a $24 million bridge loan, said, fuck it, I'll pay half up front, pays 12, leaves 12 left over. So we take an account where he's got, say, all stock holdings in it, right? All equities, U.S. equities. And it's worth maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 million in that particular account. We take that, allow those investments to still exist, and we collateralize it. And so we say, you're going to put that up as guarantee of payment, meaning... You also can't have the stocks fall below a certain level. Level, Otherwise, you're going to have to pay back into it as well to, sure. to whatever. And in the meantime, you're just going to pay a monthly interest rate until you pay this back. So maybe the interest rate at the time is like – he did it at a really low time. Like maybe it's 2% or something. So he just pays on an annualized basis whatever 2% divided by 12 is a month. And then one day, maybe nine, ten months later, he called up and said, all right, I'm paying it off. Done. And it's taken away. It's pretty easy. Now, he's also very wealthy. It's easier for wealthy people to get access to vehicles like that. But what is the value of going to do this on the Ethereum blockchain versus like just going to do that through a bank? And trust me, I'm not the guy that's arguing for banks. They're fucking sausage sure. factories. So, but. Yeah, so there's a number of reasons someone would want to do this uh, you know, on the blockchain versus, or on Ethereum versus you know, using a traditional you know, financial services business. So uh, <clears throat> first things first, like the let's just, you know, use an example. There's a crypto whale. They have, you know, $50 million in ETH. Um, You know, they have other assets, but like their ETH has appreciated so much that it's majority of their, of their net worth at this point. Uh, They, they leave it in ETH because, you know, they want the upside of, of the, you know, they think ETH's going up. Um, They also don't want to uh, sell for, for fiat and, you know, incur these huge capital gains and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, this person says, okay, like I have all this ETH, but I need, you know, some, some dollars. I have some stuff to buy, you know, have, have, uh, you know, obligations. So yeah, I mean, they can put this in a CDP or, you know, another, other DeFi platform and they CDP. Can, uh, so it's basically the old terminology for the maker, like 
maker position. So it's, it stands for collateralized debt position, but uh, they're now calling it vault. It's a more, uh, a, you know, a more cute name. One um, more time, to, maker. You've said this like twice now. I, I just so want to make sure it's is, officially uh, defined. Is the, so maker, maker DAO, or also known as maker, is the uh, is this uh, system that has is a die is effectively the die stablecoin system where st- the stablecoin die can be minted against uh, collateral that's posted to the protocol. Okay, so it's a it's it's a digital autonomous organization that operates exclusively within the Ethereum network. Um. Yeah. So it's uh. It, yep. It's uh. It, it has DAO in the name, but there actually is a foundation decentralized. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So. Uh, it's not fully decentralized at this point, uh, my understanding, but, um, you know, it, it could be in the future, but yeah. So, um, yeah, so it, it's honestly very similar to what you described with your, uh, uh, you, you know, your previous customer. Um, it's very similar, but it, you know, all happens in a trustless fashion and can be crypto collateral instead of, uh, you know, uh, spider. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's a number of reasons, but, you know, how long did it take for you to do this deal with your? You know, no, that's that's the other thing. And, how long did it take? And we did it you fast. Know, we did it fast, but probably about a week turnaround. Okay, sure. So someone with, the, right. So I'm gonna make a point here. So someone with uh, all of this crypto um, can can get this loan, uh, stablecoin loan, in a matter of minutes uh, for any yeah. any amount of money. It's a really mind blowing concept where, uh, not only financial services are now. Uh, available to you know the kind of crypto economy they're also instant you know instantly available um and you know no you know third party is required to uh you know to give permission to use this so it's pretty wide it's you know definitely the first time you know in history that uh you know there's been this kind of instantaneous like liquidity that's you know able to be generated or you know drawn against uh you know crypto collateral or other types of collateral so um there's a number of reasons someone would want to use you know maker or another protocol to finance something versus you know uh traditional bank but there's also probably an argument that can be made for why someone who has an existing you know banking relationship and whatnot might want to use that versus a DeFi protocol so I think there's two sides of the coin here. Um, I guess it depends who, who's looking to borrow. If it's someone who has a ton of crypto and doesn't have these like real world assets, like maybe it makes uh, sense to yeah. use Maker. But yeah. if you have like tons of you know SPY or like something like in the legacy financial system that can be posted as collateral, like maybe you want to use like a you know uh, you know uh, kind of a normal uh, you know banking. And that's that's what crypto as a space does and and by the way i should just mention this some people differentiate and say crypto for the entire community and then call bitcoin something else and i get that but when just for sake of when i say it i'm just generalizing and saying everything in in this space that started quote unquote with bitcoin officially i guess but there's the concept within it that the rich get richer in the legacy financial system and it takes money to make money everywhere. And so the idea of crypto is to take power of money to the common man, take away that same power we talked about where governments kind of fuck over the common man and the common man's going about life and doesn't realize it through things like money printing and stuff like that. But also when you're talking about being able to transfer money fast, being able to access it, being able to do it without a central banking system. So yes, 
you point out that there are people like the example I gave who are already established elites in society in that case and already have these accounts at legacy financial institutions and have the ability to get things through and be able to get systems that allow them to continue to make money on their money without giving up their positions and things like that through stuff like LMAs. But crypto is opening up the doors to everyone and I don't want to get lost in in the shuffle here the sense that even that guy who has access to all that stuff could be helped with with crypto sure. type ideas as far as like speed of transfer, ability to leverage technology without the third party, meaning in this case the bank, and just a general better system. Yeah, I think you know DeFi is a step function improvement to the legacy financial system where DeFi is orders of magnitude better um, than than the legacy than it's you know. Uh, what came before it. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, all the points you mentioned are certainly valid and, um, you know, this is a better, you know, faster, um, you know, uh, faster with layer two, maybe not on Ethereum mainnet today, but, um, you know, it's better uh, in a number of different ways um, than, than, you know, the legacy financial system. So it's, it's certainly uh, really, really exciting. Yeah. And we had talked earlier about <clears throat> some of the tribalism with, with some of the individual teams within crypto but this is this is a concept that relates it's not a concept that relates it it is the concept of groupthink and that's where the danger is in the crypto community but the far greater danger in my opinion to groupthink is within the legacy financial system because the legacy financial system is tied to the highest end of it which is literally the governments and the governments say what goes they regulate they do everything they tell the banks what to do and then when you look at the banks around the world the big ones the ones who actually matter they're enormous sure. corporations and i'm not faulting them that's what they are though they, they employ hundreds of thousands of people at each of these places. And so there's this guy who reports to that girl, reports to this guy, reports to that girl. I worked in this stuff. I see how this goes. Everyone's they're, – they're a little node on a machine, right? And they all have their little job and they're self-interested in making sure they do it and don't fuck it up so they don't get fired. And so there's very little ability for creativity or thinking outside the box. On the contrary, when you give anyone – access and power, anyone with an internet connection, access and power to be able to see how these systems work and be a part of it and operate within it the way that they want to that also then can be a vehicle to put food on their own table, which is what this long-term process is supposed to be for the idea of crypto as a currency, right? You now take away that groupthink because you take away the institutions who control this stuff who are living in a CYA, cover-your-ass society. That's the beauty of this to me. And so when I hear you talk about like DeFi as an example within there and I see all the applications that dApps have on Ethereum, it's like, all right, I could see that in the sense that you are allowing all this talent from around the world to come in there and say, okay, we got an idea for this. So let's let's just do it and let's do it on the thing that everyone agrees to. Anyone who can access it at any time, not just people at an institution, but the schmo sitting behind his iPhone in his living room can access and see how this works. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. There, you know, this is uh, I don't want to be repetitive, but it's a zero to one innovation. There's there's a lot of different angles where it's improving. Um, it's more transparent. It's uh, you know um, you know it's accessible. It's you know provable. It's all of these things. So um, <clears throat> I think it's you know certainly you know the thing that excites me the most about crypto right now, DeFi, and uh, you know that I'm paying the most attention to. Um, and that, you know, 
I think is, has a really bright future. So, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's early days. Um, you know, I think we'll see a few, uh, you know, huge protocols emerge in the next few years. Um, if I had to guess who it will be, you know, one of them is probably Uniswap, which I'm happy to talk more about. It's basically yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, please talk about them. Yeah, They're sure. very interesting. So it's an exchange um, that uses this kind of um, uh, you know uh, this formula to to maintain its price and kind of maintain its uh, you know the whole system. So it's an exchange with no order book. Um, it uses this constant market maker uh, function y times x equals k to uh, kind of maintain you know the equilibrium on the exchange, but. If I were a third grader and I said, <laughs> so what do they do? Yeah, What's sure. the value to me? What would you say? So the way Uniswap works is there's two, uh, there's two you know, parties. There's the traders and there's liquidity providers. So what liquidity mm-hmm. providers do is they take two tokens. So let's say WBTC and ETH, and they supply them to Uniswap. Um, and one thing to point out is the, the guys or the guys and girls who wrote the Uniswap code um, – once they deploy the code, it's you know it's up forever, um, and they don't have any you know ability to change it. So uh, they basically can you know deploy a new version and and you know publicly say okay everyone should use version three or version four, but they don't actually have the ability to you know backdoor the code or um, they don't have any you know control over it once it's uh, kind of out of their hands. So um, so yeah, so there's these liquidity providers and they provide liquidity and the traders can you know swap through the platform. So uh, basically, through this this uh, y times x equals k formula, um, Uniswap's kind of able to provide you know pricing and you know automated liquidity you know that's kind of always there um, and you know you know transparent and all of these things. Um, so it's basically democratizing uh, market making um, in a sense, and uh, it also makes trading really simple. And um, so so there's kind of two things going on. There's I'm kind of all over in this answer, but there's, it's okay. there's, going. uh, yeah, that, you know, it makes trading easier than ever. And it also makes, uh, you know, um, you know, allows folks to passively earn, uh, you know, fees from traders on their, on their, you know, crypto assets by providing them to the protocol. So anyways, uh, Uniswap has a, you know, it generates a lot of, uh, tra- you know, it gets a lot of use and the protocol generates like a lot of revenue, um, you know, on chain for itself effectively. So every day there's roughly a million dollars spent on fees on Uniswap. So there's a website, I think it's cryptofees.info. Um, and you can see this and it's actually, uh, a lot of the times there's actually more fees spent on Uniswap than there is in Bitcoin. So Uniswap is, is super active, uh, application on Ethereum. It basically, uh, the amount of fees spent on different applications and protocols every day, it's basically Ethereum's number one, or maybe Bitcoin's number one, and then Uniswap's always, you know, either two or three. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, I kind of feel that Uniswap is. It reminds me of like the early days of Facebook, um, whereas it's kind of like really interesting and and kind of like, you know, game changing technology and application. Um, and you know, everyone knew it was going to be big. You know, it hadn't. The, the market cap and whatnot hadn't blown up yet, but I, I feel feel similar similarly about Uniswap that the market cap of the coin is is about three billion today. I think it, you know, my my personal opinion is that that can grow um, orders of magnitude uh, in the next few years. And yeah, I, I do own some Uniswap. Full full disclosure. Yeah, thank you for that. And 
the the thing about Uniswap though is they also pro, the organization that runs it or built it operates out of New York City and they opened up a new Pandora's box. I don't think like just as far as Ethereum goes, but as far as the system of crypto as a whole and what it's supposed to represent goes. And I think this was maybe a couple years ago or something, but the people who run Uniswap are based out of New York City. So they are then held to not just US, but New York City sure. regulation. And so there was something with KYC, like know your client and stuff like that, where Uniswap had to block access wow, you did in, your research. in certain countries. Yeah, I saw, so, I saw this a while ago. So, so the, explain this and sure, how they got so, around it. Yeah, so, so there's two things here. So Uniswap, the smart contracts are publicly available on Ethereum, right? Those have mm -hmm. been deployed and they're, they're publicly available. Uh, the Uniswap team has also built a website or a front end to interact with those smart contracts. So mm. someone can, someone who has a good understanding of Ethereum can, you know, use the command line or uh, more command line. Command line is like a, you know, the manual way to interact with the code or, you know, uh, so they can use a, a more involved method to interact with Uniswap without using Uniswap's front end. Mm. Um, what most people do is they, they do use Uniswap's front end. They, you know, Uniswap's built a really pretty interface to uh, to interact with the smart contracts, makes it really easy to to interact with them. So what happened here is Uniswap's front end uh, wasn't geo-blocking like some countries that were, uh, I believe, sanctioned. So um, that's uniswap.org. So basically uh, Uniswap uh, geo-blocked those, those countries. Um, now, folks... I'm not, you know, saying this is a good or bad thing. Now, folks in those countries, though, that you know, can, they can still use Uniswap. Uh, the the protocol cannot is is an autonomous piece of software. It cannot discern someone. Um, That's what I mean. So they got around it in a way. They geo blocked it on their or they they blocked it on their front end, but the the actual protocol they they cannot control. They have yep. no control over that. So, I mean, those those folks in those countries technically can still use that. And now I'm I'm not, you know, I, I'm not. You know, endorsing that or anything, but I think that, yeah, I mean that that's basically what's going on here is that they blocked it on their front end, but the the, the contracts that are on Ethereum those cannot be modified, so that those cannot discern. Right now, and again, like we kind of are hopping from some things to some things here and trying to hit some interesting points. And when you're going off about stuff like that, I just want to go down into it. So yeah, if there start. are some things that I'm saying in this podcast for people listening out there, where it's like, oh, we didn't go back to that. I apologize. That that's going to happen. It definitely has happened already. I just want to, you know, when when Cole goes with something here, I I want to ride the wave. So, <laughs> with that though, Uniswap being an example of something that's built on on Ethereum. Again, yep. we come back yep. to the two entities here, and they're not entities, but I'm just going to call them entities. Where you have Ethereum, which is the protocol, the blockchain, right? Yep. And then you have Ethereum, which is the ETH, which is the the currency that you use to transact on all smart contracts of that blockchain sure the currency itself is an investment to people or i'm just using that term because people do buy and sell it who have no fucking idea what ethereum is and in, including right but people go on to Robinhood, for example and they can buy bitcoin and they can buy ethereum and so right now the space is hot because bitcoin obviously has a lot of attention around it and people are just trying to buy in and you wonder about things like, do you have at some point in 2017 all over again where pfft, things go off a roof? 
with Ethereum, there are a lot of people buying it who have no fucking idea what they're buying. They There's a lot of people buying Bitcoin who have no fucking idea what they're buying. But if Bitcoin is at least – it's simpler and yeah. it's older and it's more legacy in the sense that like more people are at least somewhat aware of how it works. With Ethereum, especially given the fact that we already covered where they do not have a cap supply on it, when you add that to the fact that so many people, as far as like in 2017, myself included back then, have no fucking idea what it is. How are we creating a price for it? Like, how is it trading at five, six, seven hundred dollars? And how how do you actually value it moving forward? I know how you do because you are in the world. You understand it inside and out. You see its application. But how is a general public like Joe Blow, who's investing in it on Robinhood, which is the worst place to do it, but or sure. Coinbase or something like that? How do they say like, yes, I know this Ethereum is worth six hundred dollars, and here's why? So yeah, this is something that's you know. Uh, Valuation with cryptocurrencies is certainly a, a interesting topic. Um, so, you know, there's no central pricing for cryptocurrencies. Like the price you see on CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap or another data provider is basically uh, an average of a number of large exchanges. So, you know, maybe they're pulling from Coinbase, Binance, uh, you know, Hobi, uh, Kraken, you know. Mm -hmm. Bifinex, uh, and all these big exchanges. So, you know, they can basically point to the uh, to the ETH USD or to the BTC USD pair, or mm -hmm. uh, or another pair at, at a given time, and say, okay, you know, based on the average of these exchanges, like this is the price right now. Um, so that's regarding the uh, you know the kind of you know how things are are priced. Basically, the market is pricing it, and it trades on all these different you know venues. Uh, it's basically a much different concept to, you know, the stock market um, where things trade on basically one venue or a few venues. Um, so, yeah, so basically all these exchanges around the world are, you know, they all have their, you know, they all have their own tech and basically they all have their own traders and liquidity and the market's kind of doing its thing and finding equilibrium. Um, regarding how people value Ethereum, um, certainly, uh, you know, there's a ton of transaction fees. I don't know off the top of my head, um, you know, how many they are, but if you were to use those to build some sort of model, I'm sure you could arrive at some sort of, uh, you know, value. Obviously there's some assumptions that need to be made and these type of things in a model like that. But, you know, I, there's probably a number of ways. I know in 2017, people like to use this, um, network formulas and whatnot to, to measure, you know, how much a coin might be worth based on like velocity and like, supply and these type of things but i think you know like with uh you know financial models for like you know vc or p or investment banking or something like it's more it's an art um there's no one you know perfect way to do it there's a you know number of different ways to do it so it's an art yeah it's uh you know it's hard to say but um on how exactly someone should model it but you know i think the transaction fees and like the amount of money being settled on it um the amount of it that's locked up, it's not moving, you know, these are all things I think that folks should take into account, but it's, there's no problem. There's no per, uh, perfect, uh, perfect answer here. Yeah. The art on the Bitcoin side seems to be boiled down to, and I'm simplifying here, but it seems to be boiled down to scarcity and adoption. It is boiled down to the fact that it was 
the first and it's the most known and it's been picked up by more and more people and now has tens of millions of people around the world who are not only aware of it, there's more than that who are aware of it, but all these people who are literally invested in it. Yeah. And then you add to that that it has a capped amount of supply at 21. And by the way, not all those 21 are going to be out there forever. As we pointed out earlier, there's like five, 10%, whatever it is that are gone forever because it was burned on a hard drive or whatever. Yep. So you have a small amount. It's even more perfect than gold, where gold, they mine approximately, they adjust gold inflation for like 1.5 or 2% annually. They expect to mine that much more, and that's been very consistent over time. I think the highest it went in the last 100 or 200 years was like 2.5%. So gold is consider, considered this inflation hedge and this, this <clears throat> very – trusted asset but bitcoin is even more so that because we know like it's going to be zero percent very soon and it's already at 18.54 or whatever million total that have already been mined with only two and a half million sub or so to go so people have that valuation there and ethereum has had a shorter life and people maybe don't have quite that valuation but when you add into the fact that ethereum doesn't as we've said seven nine twelve times now ethereum doesn't have that cap on supply and it doesn't necessarily have the awareness and adoption and the level of knowledge on an average per human basis that bitcoin does it's like you're sitting there and and maybe it's that ethereum is kind of bitcoin in 2017 now crash notwithstanding right because that hasn't happened but you know where people are like all right i get it uh, i understand like this exists but like i'm not really sure yet you know, like like there's yeah, not that, really that, that awareness. Um, I've thought about that a number of times. Basically, uh, the market cap is a bit different, but like comparing Bitcoin or Ethereum to where Bitcoin was like right before 2017, like at the end of 2016, right? So like Bitcoin was at like $700, um, you know, it did this huge run up to 20K mm -hmm. um, and then it crashed down. But, you know, Ethereum could be in a similar spot where it's at around $700 um, and maybe it sees a huge run up to like, you know, several thousand or something like that. But, um, yeah, but certainly doesn't have the level of awareness Bitcoin has yet, but um, I think that will come in due time. And I do think that a lot of the applications that are powered by Ethereum, I don't think users necessarily need to understand that it's Ethereum powering it. Um, like, they can understand if they'd like to, but um, I don't think that, you know, normal users, they don't understand, like, you know, you know, uh, how Wi-Fi works or how the PC works, right? Like they just use it. Um, mm. And the complexity is abstracted away. I think we could probably see similar things with Ethereum and, and crypto generally where people don't really, uh, they're not aware that it's crypto on the back end, but they just use it and they, they like the service. So um, I think Ethereum's, you know, building up, it's, uh, you know, it certainly has a lot of mind share in the developer community. Um, there's tons of developers hacking on Ethereum, um, these hackathons uh, that, that haven't been, they've kind of been uh, halted by COVID, but, um, and conferences are, are really wild. Um, I was at uh, Ethereum Denver um, in February, kind of like pre right before COVID, um, and it was amazing. There was like thousands of people, a thousand plus people there, um, the, you know, energy is insane the you know there's so many developers and cool projects being hacked on you know all the teams are all the crypto projects are there all the founders all the teams so it's it's really incredible um but you know i think uh you know bitcoin obviously has done a lot you know 
gained a lot of mind share in the overall uh, you know crypt, you know investment community over the last ten years or so. Um, and Ethereum's you know only been around for roughly you know five or five mm-hmm. or so years. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think you know it's it's building up the the mind share, um, but I think uh, it's making great progress. Th- this is another important. I don't know if it's a distinction or a point to throw at you and, and see what you think. You talk about how there is people are going to get behind it without maybe fully understanding it like they did other things, like parts of the internet and stuff like that. There's a difference here in my mind, and you don't have to agree, but let me just toss it out there and see what happens. When I look at like the social networks, for example. Sure. When someone goes on Instagram for the first time, let's say they went on there five years ago for the first time. They open it up. Let's say stories were around then. They weren't, but let's just say they were. They open it up. They see at the top, once they follow people, all these little circles that have lights around them that they can very quickly realize their thumb hits it and something comes up and they realize it's from that person's account. They come out of the stories. They go, they scroll through the feed and the the feed is vertical. There is a heart right below the picture and then there's an area that says add comment and you see any pre-existing comments that were there and they realize once they click add comment and it pops up and their keyboard pops up that they're allowed to do that and press enter and put it in and they realize that when they hit that hard or god forbid they even just double tap the picture that makes it red and that means that they are a part of a public like on that post it's very easy in that sense i've seen 85 year old little old ladies figure this out and you know maybe they're not great at it but they get it when they do these things but they don't understand how the HTML works and, That's and the how point. the whole website works. That's that is exactly my point. When they do That's this, it's the same thing for the blockchain. It's like they they use a wallet. Great, it works for their purpose. They, they're able to send money. They're able to like their friends' posts. But they don't. They're not understanding like what's going on in the background. Like they don't. It's not relevant to them. Like two big differences though. This this is what I want to toss out. Number one, it's money. Yeah, it money affects, is different. It, it, it affects. We're, we're talking about it in the sense that the highest level here is as new money, as, as a potential. But do you know, do normal people know how Stripe works when they use their bank? Like They don't. They don't know how Venmo works either, but they just know that there is a third party on it and that this is the way things are. It is, hand, it is backed by the FDIC. It's handled by the government in that way. The banks have to give them their money. It's a record right there. They can call up somebody on a 1-800 line sure. for their bank and be able to settle things if it's a problem. It's a pain in the ass, but they know that's all there. When it comes to cryptocurrency, they realize, whoa, this is outside the system. This is not backed by the government or the FDIC or whatever. This does not have a bank that we can call up and handle this stuff. This is taking responsibility in our hands. And the second level to it is the transparency, and I believe this, the transparency, which is a positive, huge positive, the entire crypto community, is used against them. Because when Instagram came out and and coded how to do the heart, encoded how to do a DM mailbox, encoded how to do stories. They didn't say, hey, here's the source code of what's on our server that we use. And by the way, every time you double tap, you can go click the source code and figure out exactly how it works. They just said double fucking tap and you'll figure it out later. And that's just what it is. Actually, you'll never know. With crypto, they say, hold on, you just double, let's call crypto Instagram now. You just double tap that heart. Here's how we did it. And then people, they're curious. They go in and they're like, what the fuck? And then they get confused. So in a way, that honesty, I think, sometimes is used against it. That's my point. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the folks in the space now are early um, and they're interested in that type of stuff. But we'll have to see, like, if that gets abstracted um, with time. But I I personally don't think a lot of people care. Um, 
they're just trying to use uh, an app or a service that's 10x uh, better, faster, cheaper than the, you know, than the other service. So if it is, then they'll use it. If it's not, they they won't use it. If you know, if it is, they they may not they may not care how it works. Um, but yeah, you you make some good points, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting dynamic. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we're we need time. We need to see how it develops. But once again, I actually want to pull it back to <clears throat> you. I think I've said that a couple times, and we never ended up doing it <laughs> because you've been in this space. You were early in this space, period. But now, I mean, you're a longtime veteran of this space, and Thanks, man. <laughs> I, I remember, I remember, you know, meeting you, and you were this curious kid who was like, you, you knew I was going to work at a bank and everything. You wanted to know everything about it, and you understood the stock market and the legacy system inside and out. And at first, like this is years ago, like you never talked about crypto with me or 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 that kind of stuff and i know towards like the second half of college you really started taking the initiative on that and learning the culture i'll literally call it and and understanding why people felt strongly about this stuff and how it applied to things and then you started to apply your own abilities be it you know literally as like a connector in the space or somebody who can also do some coding and somebody who understands some of the more complex stuff about it you started to get yourself into these circles by networking with people who were really smart there and and building up your your rolodex of not just knowing people but knowing why these people are important and what they do and so can you just walk us through a little bit your journey here beyond what i just said and sure. how this kind of how this ramped up and when exactly it started and and what that was like for you to to stumble upon this yeah sure happy to um so i heard about bitcoin uh in 2013 or 2014 um like a lot of people and kind of dismissed it you know uh i think i heard about the time mount gox blew up so um maybe the- <laughs> <laughs> it was a hell of a time yeah so uh so one of my uh you know friends had told me about it he's a super bright guy um now doing great things out in sf but he he had told me about it and um let's see so yeah i you know kind of looked into it i told my dad about it uh you know kind of forgot about it right so 2016 came around and i had heard about ethereum um so it got it was kind of like the end of 2016 um you know second half of the year uh and ethereum was kind of gaining some you know momentum online and whatnot and at some point i saw something about this enterprise ethereum alliance and i saw oh wow like microsoft and like these other companies are dabbling with ethereum or however i was mispronouncing it then so i thought that was super interesting i started looking into it more um asking around people said oh you know i've heard of bitcoin um you know this and that but you know not that many people were thinking about it as like an investment it was just more of like a you know Bitcoin was, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, um, you know, no one really knew about Ethereum. So, uh, yeah, I started following it really closely at that point, um, you know, kind of followed it through the, you know, through 2017. Um, you know, that was obviously really crazy with, you know, giant run up, you know, in Bitcoin and Ethereum saw a huge run up with all of the ICOs and, and all of these things, which. ICOs, can you just tell people uh, what that is? Yeah, sure. So that was a uh, initial coin offering. Basically, people were selling tokens on Ethereum. Um in exchange for ether mm-hmm. or other uh other excuse me other coins so yeah basically I, I followed the you know through the run um in kind of mid 2018 i 
kind of stumbled upon DeFi. Um, and uh, I think it was Maker first that I had seen um, and kind of got interested in what was going on there. Um, How'd you it, find that? Um, I think I saw the white paper somewhere, saw the Maker Twitter mm. and kind of was like, oh, this is this, you know, stable coin, you know, that's backed by, you know, uh, crypto. And that's super interesting. Maybe it was, they got an investment from Andreessen Horowitz, something like this. So I kind of started paying attention. Maybe that was the next year, but I started paying attention to a DeFi. Um, around the same time, I was kind of, uh, you know, working crypto Twitter, trying to meet people, um, trying to, gr- you know, grow my kind of, you know, uh, you know, grow awareness of what I was working on and whatnot. So, um, I I connected with this guy actually named Rick Burton and I still keep in touch with him. He's a great guy. And I went to his place in Brooklyn um, and I was supposed to like have a meeting with him, um, which we, we did have a meeting. But when I went to his place, I met um, a few people that kind of changed, uh, you know, how I was thinking about the space. But namely one of them was Hayden Adams, who's the uh, the, the creator of Uniswap. So mm-hmm. I met him really early on in, in kind of his journey. And when, when I met him, there was only seven, several hundred thousand dollars of ETH and whatnot locked in Uniswap. And now there's several billion dollars yeah. locked in Uniswap. So it was really early. Um, and this is 2018? This is a, this is in like November, December of 2018. Yeah. Mm. So at this point, I kind of got like really interested in DeFi. Um, <clears throat> I started writing about it. And then at a certain point, I was like, well, um, wow, there's no like meetups around DeFi in New York. Like this is really weird. Um, I'm so surprised there's no meetups around DeFi. And looking back on it, like it makes sense. Like it was pretty early and whatnot, but. Can you tell people what meetups are? Yeah, sure. So meetup is just like a, uh, you know, kind of like a, you know, a gathering between, you know, folks that have like a common interest. So, you know, there could be like a, you know, a meetup for, you know, Ethereum, of course, Mm -hmm. or, you know, DeFi, or there could be a meetup for baseball cards or, you know, people that have a certain type of dog or something like that so anyways um yeah so i i was like wow there's no DeFi meetup in new york like that's crazy so i was like well you know i should make one so i made something called DeFi nyc um which is basically a meetup group um and uh had it had our first meetup with uh MakerDAO, um uh staked uh balance uh balance and uh uma so had this really, you know, interesting first event where uh, I was at like a hotel, you know, um, a, you know, a bar at a, in, in, in Manhattan around uh, Times Square. And basically there was, you know, more than 100 people that showed up for the first meetup. I was like, wow, this is, mm. this is really crazy. Like all these people showed up to learn about DeFi and, and hear like what, what people had to say. So, you know, we had a number of other meetups. Um, and, you know, had Uniswap at the next meetup. Hayden talked about Uniswap. Um, you know, had a, a number of other folks, you know, did presentations, did panels. Um, so, you know, started, you know, networking really, you know, aggressively, I guess, in, in New York, you know, around DeFi and uh, having these great meetups. Had We had roughly, you know, 12 or so meetups until COVID kind of, uh, you know, stunted the in-person meetup. We haven't really made a transition to, to like, Zoom meetups. Uh, it's on my, like, to-do list, but... Uh, you know, I, I'm more keen on in-person meetups. So yeah, obviously COVID makes that hard. But around the same time I, I started DeFi NYC, I also started working with uh, with Staked. Um, so Staked is a infrastructure provider in the crypto space where uh, Staked largely helps uh, institutions and larger holders of crypto earn a yield on their on their coins. So mm. 
basically staked as, uh, you know, running servers on different proof of stake networks, you know, actually more than 40 different networks, which is really, really, really wild. But uh, yeah, they make it really easy for funds, exchanges, custodians uh, to stake or build out functionality for staking on their platform. So yeah, I, I started working with Staked. I joined the company um, about two years ago uh, as their first uh, business hire and uh, early employee. Um, I think I was like employee number four or five. Um, so I helped them uh, kind of on a lot of business efforts, uh, wear a bunch of different hats um, and help them grow, you know, their business, uh, uh, you know, by signing on crypto funds, you know, and other other businesses. So um, yeah, that, that's been really great. Um, still working with Staked. And um, I've also been hacking on a, another project called uh, Volmax.finance. Um, and Volmax is a kind of in development project, but what do you mean, by the way? You've said this a few times, but just to define it, what do you mean when you say like someone's hacking on the yeah, Ethereum sure. chain? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I say hacking, I just mean like just experimenting, building, um, these type of things. So uh, so there's hackathons. It's basically like when you build a project over a weekend um, and submit it and can win a bounty, win a prize, um, you know, get recognized. But yeah, like hacking can be associated with like malicious hacking. But like when I say hacking, I, I more mean like building, building, um, yeah, but just to, I got there you. is I there is you. like black hat hacking, which is like you're hacking, you know, to 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 you know do something harmful. Um, there's also white hat hacking, which is like you're hacking to find bugs and surface them so they don't get exploited by black hat hackers. But when I say hacking, I'm just talking about building. Um, so yeah, so I started uh, hacking on Volmex uh, on nights and weekends, um, and basically we've built uh, a volatility index for ETH. So think um, VIX for crypto. So we're mm. calling it, yeah, so we're calling it ETH V index, or it's called ETH V index, and it's a index that measures the, you know, uh, uh, the volatility of ETH over the next 30 days. So it's super interesting um, that we, you know, you can check out the website at volmex.finance, V-O-L-M-E-X.finance. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, some info there. You can join the Discord group, read the intro blog posts. Um, we're, you know, we're... Uh, You're active on there right now? Uh, yeah, so working on that on, on in my free time on nights and weekends. Um, and uh, yeah, actively working on wow. that. Um, so uh, yeah, it's super exciting. But yeah, there's... And then, yeah, I mean, you know, just continue to stay active on Twitter. Um, you know, try to continue to meet interesting... Meet and, you know, uh, you know connect moving. with interesting people. Um and, you know, just keep my, you know, thumb on the spate or my, you know, finger on the pulse, uh, you know, via Twitter. Uh, Telegram is a big, big channel for crypto. Stop for one second, because I actually want to go back to your to your project. I don't, I don't want to just let that go. That, that's that is really fucking cool that you're doing that. And Thanks, I want to make sure pe people know this. So when you say the VIX, which is on the legacy financial system, to yeah, explain sure. that to people, the VIX is basically it measures it is a bet that people can buy into they can buy it as an etf so yeah yeah so vix is, a, vix is an index first and foremost um there's also derivatives that are uh you know that use the vix as like a reference mm -hmm. uh like futures and options yep um but basically what vix is doing is it's it's measuring the 30-day implied volatility of of uh the s p 500 and the way that it does this is with uh a number of um a number of options that it you know uses this data to price the index. All right, let me let me pull that for you back into English. So what he means is that let's say the S&P I'm going to use fake numbers. Let's say the S&P is trading at 3000 right now. It's more than that, but let's just use a round number. 
when I buy into the VIX and I then raise the price of the VIX, let's say I raise it from 15 to 40, which is a big move. That is, and, and it doesn't work this way. It is, as Cole said, it's implied volatility. It's like a guess. It's like a hypothesis. That means that the hypothesis of the general market, if VIX is trading at 40, means that they think that the market can flip 40% in either direction from where it is. And yep. usually when it's high, it means 40% in the wrong direction at some point. So if I'm understanding correctly, Volumex.finance, which is your ethereum-based vix mm -hmm. is doing the same thing on the ethereum blockchain but doing it with implied volatility of ethereum the currency itself there that's right okay. um you know we'll be publishing uh you know like a formal white paper um and all that uh you know, we have the the, the index is live today but we, we wow uh, there's the documentation could be a bit, a bit built out more but um yeah so your tldr is perfectly right um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's VIX or it's, uh, you know, calculated in 30 day implied volatility of ether. Um, and it publishes this to the blockchain every time it's queried. So a user can pay a small amount of ETH and, uh, query the index and it will publish to the blockchain. When you say query the index. When I say query, I mean that they can interact with the smart contract via, uh, EtherScan, which is like a block explorer, but they could also do it via like a website that, uh, you know, our dev team builds or, you know, mm. we build. Um, but yeah, so b basically, you know, they're able to send a small amount of cryptocurrency, Ether, um, to the Volm to the ETHVIX uh, contract and it will spit out the current implied volatility for them or the current uh, ETHV, I should say. So, wow. uh, yeah, it's it's super interesting. Um, yeah, it, again, I, I'd say like volmax.finance, uh, on you know this url and uh we have a discord and twitter um come hang out ask questions um you know happy to happy to answer um, you're so low-key about this i love it you're like, yeah you know that's a deal it's like yeah, i just fucked around and built an options exchange on my day off it's cool it's whatever uh, you know it's it's a it's we have a lot to do and a lot to build but it's a uh first and foremost we've built an index and you know a protocol for adding new indexes uh so um yeah we're really excited about it and we'll we're excited to share more but yeah it's uh you know we haven't published a formal white paper there's no official documentation yet but um you know looking forward to sharing that with the community and sorry for being a little cagey no 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 I, all, all good I, I understand like it, it's obviously earlier on here and, and there, we haven't there, open sourced anything but right. we, we plan to you're going to right okay i'll i'll leave that there um Switch it up for a second onto something I was I was thinking about that I definitely want your opinion on just to make sure we yeah. we get it out there. And actually, I say I want your opinion on it, but the reason I want to bring it up is because you're someone who who operates without an opinion on this, which I think is great. But it's the controversial coin out there that, depending on who you are, <laughs> you call it a shit coin or a, the next great hope, and that is XRP. And XRP I bring up just because so many people are aware of like Ripple. They call it wrong because the company Ripple is the one who produced XRP, so they call XRP Ripple. But it's controversial, and I'm going to really broaden this, in the sense that it is a coin that is created by a company where, as I said, Ripple, which also 
controls, I think, like 80% of the circulating supply. So they are completely in control of it. And their value add, very broadly, highest level, is that they are going to existing institutions and implementing XRP, among other things, at these institutions, be it big banks, um, enormous companies, whatever, and allowing for the value of xrp which is quick transactions no middleman none of that bullshit whatever that existing banks have and saying all right we're going to implement that within the existing ones to make you get it get out in front of this so people in the crypto community who are all about decentralization the whole concept of bitcoin was to go around institutions many of them dislike it a lot like they hate it and they think that it's a sellout and a total shit coin and bullshit and it might be but you are a guy who does not say that oh it's terrible or oh it's great you just kind of operate here and obviously you're much more interested in ethereum and much more interested in bitcoin but what is the what are the like besides the very simpleton view I just put on it, what are the possibilities you see with XRP, both terrible and and great, and and why does it matter, and why do people talk about it so much for the average person who doesn't really know much about it? Sure. So this is a loaded question. Um, it is. And I'm gonna do my best. Yeah. Um, first off, I would say there's a lot of folks that know about XRP, a lot of retail folks that like are aware of it and like have bought it or like, you know, know about it. They have family or something, friends that have bought it. So I find that really interesting that there's like this awareness of XRP, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which has something to do with 2017. Like, uh, you know, just XRP going up, you know, a lot. Um, and in general, but I think the problem that there is my understanding is that the problem that XRP and, and ripple, I'm going to use them like synonymously that they're trying to solve is that, they want to build a better uh, Swift and Swift uh, at a high level is like the, you know, banking, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bank uh, transfer system. So, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't have a good sense of like their, you know, penetration and like how well they're doing um, with that. What I can say is that it has a huge market cap and like it's the third largest cryptocurrency mm-hmm. or maybe it's a third or fourth. I, I don't forget if Tether is bigger, but you know, I find that interesting just from that it's, you know, been so successful. It's kind of interesting that, you know, what it's been able to do, but I'm not, I don't have a real educated uh, viewpoint on like, are they doing a good job at replacing Swift? Like it's interesting. It works, I I suppose. Um, You know, I I think anything that works is good. Um, So, but we'll have to see what happens with it. Um, yeah, so like the market cap's like really rich already. It's hard to say like what the price of XRP will will look like. Um, what I will say is that there's a ton of retail traders probably trading it, and like that it it's probably a good speculative uh, trading instrument. But I haven't traded it. Yeah, yeah. I, I and it's 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 a messy it's a messy one to touch. As as I said earlier, I don't own any of it. I, I don't have any plans to either. I have I have significant reservations about it because of the fact that look you are run by your early adopters and it's not the xrp doesn't have adopters it absolutely does but the space of crypto and the space of decentralized currency the early adopters of that adopted again because they believed in a system that operated outside of the current power system that be right the governments the institutions and when you see xrp 
actively integrating with those institutions. They're basically, the way I view it, saying, we're going to meet you halfway. We're, we're going to bring a better system. <laughs> Shit's going to settle a lot easier. You can move a billion pesos from Mexico to South Korea now using XRP in three seconds as opposed to like five days with all these middlemen. But... We're going to do it through the systems that we know and trust. And that's a very bastardized way of putting it. And some people say that's completely uneducated. But at a high level, that's how a lot of people in the space see it. So I look at it like, hey, regardless of how I feel about that, which, look, if I wanted this to go the way I wanted it to go, I would want none of the institutions to be able to have any level of that control they already have. I don't want them to maintain that. I want people to actually take back money and the power behind it, which is what the whole system is set up to do. That said – Assuming that I have no say over it and just looking at it unbiased, maybe that is the way people go. What it seems to me, though, when not just the price action from where it fell from and what it hasn't recovered to, but when you see people who are the earliest adopters of the space talking online and the communities they're building, it seems like a lot of people are like, no, fuck that. We want it pure or we or we don't want it at all. Um, yeah, I mean, candidly, there's some sort of animosity towards XRP in the crypto community. Um, I'm not exactly sure like when that start. Well, yeah, I, I can't, I'm not exactly sure like the origin of that. I think it has something to do with like the pre-mine and there was a lot of a uh, pre-mine, like the fact that the team owns so much of it. Yeah. Um, and like early on in the Bitcoin community that like that, that has become more common as more like tokens and, and stuff, ICOs, it's become more common and it's actually there's a different type of launch coming about now but and most of them are immediately written off as shit coins now because people <laughs> have seen that movie they've seen that movie in 2017 2018 <laughs> well let me say something so i think there is a big uh kind of animosity maybe towards pre-mines and stuff early on but i think it's becoming you know people think uh you know now people realize like developers need to get paid like they, they probably need to keep some some, some amount of tokens like to you know to be properly incentivized sure. and whatnot. But um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's probably why there might be some animosity towards XRP, maybe the the centralization or I don't know, like they have a really aggressive Twitter Twitter army and whatnot. But, um, I, you know, I think it works to a certain, I think it works uh, it, it, as far as I understand it works. And like I said, like I'm a fan of things that work, um, you know, in, in this crypto world, like there's stuff that doesn't work, but it seems that it, it works for sending money around cheaply. I can't speak to like how much users, how many banks are using it and whatnot. Like, uh, I think there's some, you know, you know, their CEO, Brad Garlinghouse talks about Mm -hmm. that type of stuff. So, you know, maybe check out an interview with him, but yeah, I think it's overall, it's, uh, you know, I think it's interesting. Um, I don't really have a super, uh, you know, opinionated thoughts on it though. Taking, taking the middle ground. I appreciate it. I, one, one thing I will say on it, that personally hit home for me that put up some red lights and that is i you know as i mentioned i used to work at a bank and so i I worked in merrill and merrill was owned by bank of america in light of the global financial crash and that deal that happened in in 2008 and bank of america ruined merrill lynch think what you want about banks or whatever merrill had a certain culture and over time Bank of America ripped that fucking thing away. And it was very sad to watch it happen. And I was there watching it happen and watching that sausage factory mentality just completely take over any ability to do anything for people that worked at Merrill within Bank of America. Neither here nor there. The first time I really noticed Ripple, though, 
operating in some ways where I was like, this ain't it, was on some some very hidden things at Bank of America. So I, I had access to all the company research, which have all the little disclosures, all the internal research and everything, you know, at the bottom in the small print that no one reads. And I remember seeing in like page three of, you know, size four font disclosures at the end of some research report I was reading, this maybe like two and a half years ago, three years ago, talking about how XRP, how Bank of America was working with the company Ripple on the implementation of XRP for blank, blank, blank. Doesn't matter what it said, but it, it was talking about like sure. transactions and things. And I looked around and I looked at my desk where there was a 2009 HP monitor, carpets that below me that hadn't been replaced in 30 years, and a system that was operating using Internet Explorer that blocked Wikipedia some days. And... I looked around the rest of the office and I looked at any of the technology we used and I wouldn't even call it technology. And I also knew how serious our team that I worked with was as far as the amount of assets we managed and the types of people we did. It, my boss dealt with people who run society, so to speak, right? And I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. This company gives us these quote-unquote resources and claims to like they weren't even they weren't even letting people use zoom when COVID happened like sure. that they weren't yeah. even letting that happen i mean that's how tight this was and they they basically treat everyone at merrill like mushrooms feed them shit keep them in the dark but on the back end they are at the time bank of america was globally had the fourth highest investment in blockchain technology of any company on planet Earth. And they're filing patents like nothing. Left and right. America's and this and and most. so I went deeper because I'm like, oh, and, and they're integrating XRP, but we're not even allowed to talk about Bitcoin with our clients, let alone trade it. We're literally not allowed to talk about it. I'm like, that's interesting. So then I went digging online because all these answers are somewhere. And I realized that Bank of America, even like on LinkedIn, had all these crazy roles on the technical side of the business. For that XRP? were That was what? For XRP? Or, oh, they didn't say that. But, I thought you meant they had a, like an advisory role for for Ripple. Yes, they did. But here's how they sold it: they'd have these long name titles, right, on LinkedIn, like looking for a engineer in the blank blank space of technical malfeasance or whatever. And then I'd go in, I'd read the description, and they'd pack the whole top of the description with the basic bullshit, like you know, looking for somebody who's motivated, has five plus years of experience. But then you go down, and suddenly it goes to this role will be working directly with the company Ripple to implement the XRP ledger within our system yeah, to do blank. Yeah. And it would have all this shit. And I'm like, this is not why this stuff was created. This was not created to keep Bank of America growing as a sausage factory here. But that's what they're doing with it. And so again. I don't have the full context there because I'm an idiot going in and looking that shit up. I'm not somebody in this space who can truly understand all the nuance of it. But when I look at that, they're not saying we're working with the fucking company Bitcoin to implement the Bitcoin on the ledger for all our clients because there is no company Bitcoin. Yeah. But they're working with this company Ripple that controls 80% or whatever it is. It's a big percentage that they still control of the XRP currency. And they're working with that to be able to implement it as if to get ahead of all the people who they need as clients to continue to exist. That's scary to me. Yeah, you have an interesting point. Um, enterprise blockchain is uh, something I'm not too close to, actually. But um, I think it's interesting, but it's it's hard to say, like, <laughs> like investing in, like, private ledgers and, I don't know, like, experimenting with Bitcoin or... Uh, well, let's say like experimenting with Hyperledger, which is like a or 
a private blockchain or um quorum which is like a fork of ethereum that's like permissioned um or like xrp like it'll, it, we'll have to see like how these enterprise uh you know blockchain efforts are like like what happens with them like if they amount to anything or i'm not sure like i'm more f- close to the public ledger stuff like uh you know less enterprise more just like publicly you know out there le- not permissioned uh you know blockchains but you know, I think this this tech has a place uh, in these companies, and I just think they're trying to find what it is. So they're doing a lot of R and D, probably these different shops, different companies, um, trying to figure out what's working, throwing shit at the wall, hoping it sticks. So, but yeah, I think uh, we'll have to see what happens with these enterprise blockchain initiatives. Like, I, I do see what you're saying. Like, it's not really in the same spirit as crypto because it's like you know it's uh you know they're using this tech to further their their institution but uh we'll have to see what happens right yeah i i mean it's time will tell on it no doubt about that but it, it it's just that's something i think about a lot because i don't know what i don't know no and it's an interesting and, insight yeah there, there's so much i don't know but you know walks like a duck quacks like a duck it's usually a fucking duck so it's it's just you know but going back to the higher level here because I, I I think our our last area of conversation here, going through some stuff, we we really should focus on the things that most people are aware of. So I I really appreciate taking a deep dive on Ethereum today, and that may come up in in this context again at some point. But when we're looking at Bitcoin, everyone's now in prediction mode, right? Even people who have no fucking idea how it even works or what it is, they're just looking at the price action because they're like, "Ooh, I can make money." You know, you have. And these guys actually do know some stuff because they do at least study it. But you even have the the big institutions like I talked about earlier, like Guggenheim and all of them coming out, calling price action and saying like, oh, Bitcoin is going to be $400,000 by 2025. And you have every asshole on Twitter saying, I see Bitcoin at 80000 by the end <laughs> of October or whatever. And no one really knows for sure. But what people are trying to measure is the supply and demand. And they're trying to say that like hey throughout its lifetime 2017 being the most recognizable one because more people were aware of it then but throughout its lifetime bitcoin has gone way up and come back down and then struggled and then worked its way even up higher and then come back down and gone through these little cycles and they're usually two to three years so now we're two to three years into this new cycle here that hit a enormous low obviously comparatively speaking at like 35 3200 in december 2018 off the 20,000 high but we've only just crossed that 20,000 and we're up at 23 24 now and so a lot of people are trying to say like all right i think this one could now get the price up times four times five i don't put a lot of stock into no pun intended into what any of these people are pontificating what i try to do is i try to say where is bitcoin in 2030 where is it in 2035 and not just where is the price that's just a byproduct of it where is the actual concept and what do we look at it as and what is it how much bigger is the adoption do you have any opinion on that or is it just totally open open space for you yeah you know we'll have to see what happens um let's see so you know i think it's timing the crypto market and uh price predictions are like next to impossible um you know it's hard to say like what the price will do obviously um hopefully at that point there's lots of retailers accepting bitcoin um 
you know, lots of businesses using it, um, you know, folks using it as a savings technology or, you know, to save money, um, putting a lot of wealth there. So hopefully it's just like widely accepted as money. Like it's starting to, um, but like, hopefully at that point, like you could just say to some, someone like else, like, Hey, like, don't worry, man, I'll send you that, that dinner in Bitcoin. And it's not, mm-hmm. I'll send you the, the money for that dinner in Bitcoin. It's not just, uh, you know, haha, man, like, you know, Bitcoin, like you're still doing that. Like it's, so maybe just a more widely accepted, uh, medium of exchange. That could be one thing. Um, let's see. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say like exactly what will happen. And obviously I do think, well, not obviously, but I think Ethereum, um, has a good chance of being larger than Bitcoin. Uh, certainly not impossible. Um, I think the, like if you compare Bitcoin Mm. to gold, um, Bitcoin is, you know, uh, the gold market cap is nine trillion, and like that's maybe a reasonable comp for Bitcoin. Um, it's much harder to say like what the Ethereum addressable market is because it applies to like what we were talking about before. It's like a thin layer of tech that applies to a lot Everything. of different things. Yeah. It's hard to say like exactly, you know, what the addressable market is there and like how much value Ethereum can accrete. But what I can say is that with like something like the EIP fifteen fifty nine, if that was to get implemented, um, what is that? That's like when they burn the small amount of ETH for every transaction. That could result, which means what? Which basically means the supply is reduced and therefore like should be like value accretive and maybe, mm, maybe price goes up. Deflationary. So, yeah. Okay, so yeah. like as there's more apps and more people building on Ethereum and more ETH is more transactions, um, you know, hopefully, you know, ETH accretes value from that as ETH gets burned. So, all right, wait, fuck it, right down the ETH at rabbit hole. I'm, I'm with it. Let's do it. <laughs> so we're gonna, we're gonna pull back to mostly Bitcoin, but th- this sparked my interest. When you burn that ETH, wh- who loses? Where does it go? So basically, the someone whoever's initiating the transaction, like it's a portion of their transaction fee that gets burned. So, um, so like they're spending money to, to push the Got transaction. Got it. It's part of the gas. Yeah, it's part of the gas. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's hopefully going to go live soon. I believe there's a pull request or like a, uh, you know, an update like request out there um, for to, to you know kind of implement this. But uh, yeah, it's it's not live yet. But um, hopefully it will be soon. But uh, yeah, I think Ethereum has a good chance of being larger than Bitcoin. But it's really hard to tell. Um, obviously. If Bitcoin has a head start, but um, I just think Ethereum's start solving a larger problem, like uh, like just kind of the whole trust, uh, you know, just trust on a bunch of different levels versus Bitcoin, which is really great, really cool, um, but it's kind of like a one-trick pony in my opinion. What do you mean with trust, though? So just automating all these different, uh, you know, applications and industries. So... Uh, just the fact that the smart contract acts as a middleman or a counterparty. Um, and, uh, you know, it's basically automating trust, um, you know, automating. Oh, I understand. There's no bank required. There's no, you know, there's no human component. All the third party is, is a, is a piece of software. Uh, so, so that's what I mean by. And you're saying that comparatively speaking, and we said this earlier, but I just want to clarify. You're saying comparatively speaking, Bitcoin doesn't do any of that. Bitcoin is just literally this store of value. It's it's that one, and I mean this in a nice way, it's that one trick pony, whereas Ethereum allows you to integrate all different levels of society into the blockchain that then has the currency below it. Yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Ethereum has functionality Bitcoin doesn't have, um, but I think Bitcoin is a big innovation in itself, um, like a you know monetary network, community owned monetary network. Uh, one thing I will hit on is. I'm kind of jumping around here. Go um, for it. We've been jumping all day. I love yeah, it. Let's go. Tokens on Ethereum are like the best uh, coordination and like incentivization mechanism like ever. Like, like that's like Why? a statement. So they, 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 you can incentivize like user acquisition or you can acquire, use them to acquire users and, and basically, you know, so there's this thing going on in, in DeFi called like liquidity mining where basically uh, users like, who have uh, you know coins will provide liquidity to a protocol in exchange for like their kind of protocol token. So, common example is uh, Compound. So, they're a borrow lending protocol, uh, one of the largest protocols, and they introduced their Comp token earlier this year. And they said, okay, ever moving forward, everyone that's like a user of the protocol will start earning Comp tokens. So basically, they're incentivizing growth of their user growth of their protocol so it's just this new type of uh you know incentive engineering that's really innovative and um rewarding users and uh re- basically resulting in a community-owned network um so so tokens allow for community-owned networks and uh you know coordinating um you know communities and, and incentivizing them so it's you know i, I think is a major uh you know innovation on that front um and that can be applied to so many different things so there's some some sort of app you know whatever widget app they can you know if they have a good you know they can have a token that governs the platform and they can distribute that to users and effectively move to a community-owned uh you know protocol or network so it's a kind of powerful concept but people should be very careful with uh tokens that you know they're immutable they cannot be changed if you fuck up or excuse me uh if you mess up (laughs) You can say whatever you want here. If you mess up your token distribution, like there's no going back. It's it's uh, one way, one way. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I think uh, tokens are a really incredible uh, tool, um, and uh, we'll have to see like what folks continue to do with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening on Ethereum. Um, but I think it's yeah, it, overall, it's a exciting space, exciting times. What a time! Now you saw though. In 2017, and you alluded to it earlier, one of the big problems was the ICOs, the ICOs, because <laughs> everyone and their mother was like, oh, I'll do a fucking token for this or, you know, for that, and we're going to create this on the blockchain. And a lot of them were written on Ethereum, no? Yeah, pretty much. So I actually did some research uh, in 2018 with a Columbia professor uh, and Fordham professor uh, named Paul Johnson, and we wrote mm. a paper, which you might remember. I do remember um, this one. Yeah, tell people about and, that. And uh, yeah, we wrote a paper called "Money for Nothing," and we we kind of analyzed like all these ICOs, uh, and basically, you know, how a lot of them um, failed, delivered on their promises, uh, all this type of things. But yeah, like it was like ninety five percent or something like that was built on Ethereum. So to answer your question, um, most of the ICOs were built on Ethereum. So I, I, probably your next question is like, what happened to them? A lot of them failed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they raised money for some ambitious, uh, you know, project and they like couldn't, you know, there was like execution risk. They couldn't ship it. Um, you know, they, something went wrong. Like they built it. They couldn't get users. Like there's some successful projects that came out of the ICO era, like MakerDAO, Maker, what we're talking about a lot today, or 
Oops. Um, you lost the volume. You good? No, I'm good. Yeah. All Maker. Right. Uh, yeah. Basically, like the community kind of, uh, you know, saw these projects as, I don't know, like there's this perception of like they raised the token or sold the token and like didn't really deliver anything valuable. Um, this is an issue. So the sentiment now is like, let's build and then start centralized and distribute a token later on to the community. So, uh, yeah, yeah explain, that's, explain that. So that's kind of the liquidity mining thing I explained. So like the development team, they build a protocol, uh, basically has like a kind of, I'll call it like a backdoor where like the developers can like kind of have the ultimate authority. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of early on. So if something happens, you know, they can use their their admin key to like you know kind of resolve that. Um, but basically, these these protocols transition to like a community owned uh, protocol where they kind of eliminate that backdoor that admin key and kind of transition to like a something that's owned entirely by the token holders. So mm. distributing that token um, kind of like is that transition to a community owned network. Community driven, the the concept of these things being built across a global community of the people that that's what it all comes back to and we've hit on it a million times today but i can't help but think of this book i, I read pretty recently that drives home a lot of this point and what's happening right now I, I think i talked with you on the phone about it a couple of weeks ago but the book the fourth turning did oh, i mention that yep and you hadn't <clears throat> read that right i have not no okay but we talked about it briefly right so the very high-level view of the fourth turning without going all the way through it, I'll, I'll review some of the basics. It was a book written in 1997 by two guys who were historians slash sociologists, and they basically read history over, call it, the last 1,000, 2,000 years. And they broke down history into what's called a seculum. It's just a pattern that occurred over and over again. And a seculum, I think, is a Latin word for like 100 years or something like that. And what they realize is that especially since – say like 1600 or 1700, we have operated on, instead of a full seculum of 100 years, it's been about an 80 to 85 year life cycle across civilization. And what that means is that the life cycle refers to the generations within those 80 to 85 years. And to bring that down another level, they were saying that each generation runs on an approximately 21 year range. And that would mean that, for example, millennials, as we may call them, would operate over a 21-year birth history and Gen X, a 21-year birth history and boomers and all the way down, which is a little different than the way some generations have been defined. Like people say the boomers are 46 to 64 and Gen X is maybe 65 to 81 and millennials are 82 to 97. They're saying that those numbers are a little off and it's literally full 21 years. So the the... And sometimes they vary a little bit. Like the boomers, they view as like early 40s to very early 60s. And Gen X, they view early 60s to early 80s and so on and so on. And the reason this is all important is because they realize that this shit occurs in patterns. And by patterns, every generation, what they meant is every generation matches some form of narrative. So they broke it down into what's called prophets, nomads, heroes, and artists. And so without going all the way into those, each of these generations serves a different purpose and they all have four parts of life. So there's childhood, 
There's coming of age, which is like age 21 through 42. There's midlife, which is where the generation is in power in society, which is, I think, like 43 to 63. And then there's elderhood, which is when, you know, nicer way of saying you're on your way out. And that's 63 and above. And when each of these generations, the prophets, the nomads, the heroes, and the artists reach like each of those points, there is a specific thing that happens over and over again, patterns in society. And so, long story short, right now, this period from, say, the mid-aughts to what's going to be 2025, 2030, is a period that's called a crisis. And this occurs every fourth generation. And a crisis involves economics, sociology, geopolitical events, wars, stuff like that, you know, and it just occurs over and over again. And what these guys hypothesized in 1997 was instead of being like every other historian, sociologist ever who tries to read history and then change it for the future because apparently they know more and doesn't just subscribe to the fact that history does in fact repeat itself, these guys just said history is going to repeat itself and without going exactly into how it's going to happen, here's what's going to happen. And they literally broke down that there was going to be a major economic crisis earliest being like 2005 but latest being about 2010 so that happened in 0809 they nailed that and they broke down that throughout that next period which was this full crisis period there was going to be a massive societal uprising and change and so i then look at it and i i start to measure out when some of these things happen so they're telling me for example that a crisis happened you know or, or is going to happen and that if it happens every fourth generation that would mean according to their numbers the last crisis was 80 to 85 years ago so when you measure that over that period of a 20-year crisis or so go back 80 years 0809 we have our global financial crisis 80 years before that we had the stock market crash and the great depression that followed so instead of a great depression this time we had governments come in and print money and then save some things, but what did they do? They created the biggest wealth gap in history throughout the 2010s that then just got a big button pressed in 2020 with COVID that just made it even way worse. So Great Depression, wealth gap. 1940, 1941 last time, we see World War II break out. And that ended up being this big crisis. So we're in that period right now, 80 years later. But the question is, like, is Corona a precursor to some of that? I don't know. That's, that gets a little above my level. But, and by the way, I should just say, what was 80 to 85 years before World War II? Civil War, 1861 to 1865. What was 80 to 85 years before that? Revolutionary War, 1776 to 1783. This shit is happening in cycles, and you can draw it across the entire cycle. But I really focused on and had my own little epiphany with the economic side of a crisis period and some of the parallels to what we saw with recently the stock market recently i say the the last one that happened before this which was 1929 into the 30s which was the stock market crash and the great depression how did the great depression get fixed quote unquote the new deal exactly you had fdr come in and fdr comes in and inherits the worst blank deck you could ever get with the Great Depression post-stock market crash. And in order to save America, he implements all these systems, these government-sponsored systems that had all these downstream effects, including, by the way, the fact that they didn't help out minorities at all. They kind of left them out and created systems that still exist to this day. And he started things like Social Security and, I believe, Medicaid and stuff like that, which didn't take into account population growth 
and longevity of life. They created exponential systems that are just ticking time bombs to eventually blow up, which, by the way, we're statistically not far off that happening. Throughout that time, he also then outlawed gold bullion. In 1937, the government did an enormous recall on gold bullion. People don't know this. And immediately upon taking it back from citizens by force, they then repriced it and created a new price on it and basically got the government richer and, and took away the, the world's most precious asset from its people. And so that didn't include like jewelry, but it included people who actually own gold. And so all these things pointed to more government growth and more government control and taking power away from the people and creating a system that was designed to eventually fail. Now I come back to the present day, and I look at a system that did fail for people in September 2008 when it started to blow up, where all these banks had taken all these bets, and suddenly, boom, and citizens are left to pay for it with their tax money, and all the trust is gone from the system. And so Satoshi comes out and creates Bitcoin on October 1st, 2008. That is not lost on me, that irony. And no one knew what it was for years, or very few people did, but throughout this 2010s period it grew and the distinction i make there and it might not just be bitcoin it may not be it may be the entire space of crypto itself but the distinction i make is that in a sense if we're looking at this parallel history that these guys laid out you essentially had the new deal and now you have the new new deal and the new new deal is instead of the government coming in and solving things and creating systems that are fucked, the people come in and say, you fucked that up last time, this time we're getting it right and we're going to create a system that works and we're going to do it in a way that takes out human error. Bitcoin being the best example, by setting things like not just a transparent ledger, but by the way, this is going to be a monetary system that has a fixed supply. You can't fuck with it. No government can ruin it. No guy who has to win elected office or save his ass can say in the short term, like, all right, we're just going to print money and solve the fucking problem and leave it to the next guy. There's no kicking the can down the curb. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Bitcoin's not a bubble. Bitcoin is the, the pin that pops the bubble. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's like a kind of an idiom in crypto, I think. But um, yeah, you know, I think Bitcoin is and crypto is probably a solution to a lot of a lot of issues going on in the world uh and should be transformative for society can make the world a better place and uh enable you know a lot of different things so uh but yeah i think uh there's definitely parallels um i need to think about it a bit more but it's certainly an interesting topic yeah um i, I know you've thought about it a lot so it's, it's cool yeah i just laid that one on you sorry pal <laughs> But I, I just like it's so clear to me, and it's like we're we're at that frontier, and and this this might be it, and and seeing how the how the space has risen up in the face of 2017 and all the bad branding that happened at at the when when that started to go wrong, and and how much it's it's turned around, and people are now using a crisis time, a COVID time, to see the value in this. It it's a pretty crazy thing. So yep. You know, listen, I, I I really appreciate you coming in here and running through all the shit you're working on, man. This yeah, has been man, great. thanks for having me. This was amazing. Um, looking forward to, uh, you know, next time and, and seeing this online and, and, you know, seeing the, yeah, listening. So um, it's really great being here and having this, you know, discussion with you. Um, this is really awesome. Thanks, Julian. No problem, man. Anytime. And, and I look subscribe, forward. Subscribe, like, and subscribe to Trend Thank of Fire. You. Thank you. I look forward to having you in again. And where can people get you on Twitter? Because you are a king on Twitter. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that's that's flattering, but please, no. Um, <laughs> my Twitter is Cole Got Tweets. So uh, C O L E uh, Got Tweets. 
and uh i'm also on linkedin or whatever else uh but yeah uh, hit me up on twitter send me a dm i'm uh, i'll answer you i will put that link in the description <laughs> of this episode so Amazing. you have it cole is followed by a lot of prominent people he's going to be too humble to say but he he has he has a very good network ability on on Twitter and is and is in the middle of a lot of shit. Very cool shit. So thanks, man. Anyway, it, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming in. We'll we'll have you again. And uh, awesome, everyone else, give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace. Peace.